Hello. Oh, hello. Hi. How are you doing, Christy? Uh, hello, boyfriend. I am just fine. <laughs> hello. Uh, How are you? We have, <laughs> we have not been around each other all morning. Uh, right. Yeah, that is, it is a weird thing to, like, live with someone and then say hello to them in the middle of the day. Is, is there someone else we should be saying hello to? I don't think so. Why? Did you hear something? I thought I heard something. Hello! <gasps> Who is that? <laughs> it's a spooky, ah, disembodied wait, no. voice. <laughs> <laughs> I said ooh, and then I immediately went into the like, wow, ooh, ah, and then I was like, ghosts don't do <laughs> like, ah. No. Ghosts are never amazed. That's fireworks. You're close. Yes. Very close. Ghosts and fireworks are separated by uh, one noise, and that's the ah. They're very similar I... in a lot of ways. <laughs> I thought I heard fireworks today, but it turned out it was just someone cutting siding. So, yeah, there's like a not so exciting. Every time they like measure and cut a new piece, there's this like weep, and you expect to hear like a pop, but it doesn't happen. Yeah, except it was like, like one in the afternoon and bright outside. So I was like, "What are they doing?" That's just yeah. a waste of money. <laughs> like yeah. fireworks with no like payload at the end <laughs> the thing is that was happening all the time like around the 4th of July they would they absolutely would be going off in the afternoon and I'm like why are you like this those people have too much money you should ask them for some yeah right you, you, you're <laughs> literally giving it away. you're blowing it up can I have a little bit please <laughs> yeah you know that's the thing I wonder do, do you have to deal with like fireworks constantly out there or are people a little smarter than that in the state where everything is on fire, right. no, we don't set yeah. off fireworks. I mean, except for people who work for like ICE and have sex reveal parties for their babies. Yeah, it's right. Usually not yeah, a problem. that one. Oof, big oof. Yeah, I, I think as much. that. I feel like maybe I heard a fireworks display on July Fourth, and I think that typically it's a town that has a body of water where they can do it out over water, and it's controlled. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, we we have them constantly here, and it's it's like not even <laughs> just be, it's like well before the Fourth of July, well after the Fourth of July, clear into September. You hear you'll be you sitting on a quiet night and hear whee pow. I guess they that's don't... better than if they were just throwing firecrackers because that's a confusable yeah. noise that is a little more stressful. Yeah, right. Just explosions with no like setup. <laughs> I, I just heard a pop, 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 pop. I don't know what's going on. But, uh, <laughs> is it a gun or is it a firework? Well, we, or a really we old car. We, yeah. We got that too. A guy a couple of blocks from here was just shot and killed the other day. Just kind of freaked everybody right out. Right behind my grandparents' house, actually. Yeah. Oh. Really? So. I mean, every like my my grandparents weren't involved but like your, your, gra sure? your grandma was not the person i don't think she was the culprit are you sure have you called? Uh, i don't think she could out. get away as quickly as the suspect did I so. True. just saying she had access she had opportunity you only have to establish <laughs> to motive. my knowledge my grandma does not own a gun okay well, that... to my knowledge they don't tell me everything. That cuts against her for <laughs> sure. I think we might be able to tentatively rule her out. <laughs> I'm sure. At the bottom of the list. <laughs> I'm sure they have some secrets. Yeah, not off the list, just at the bottom. My grandma's a very private woman. Mm. She really is. There, she might be really proficient <laughs> at firing a gun, and I would never know. Um, do we? How do we want to <laughs> warm up into this episode here? We got anything to report? Anything? Um. 
anything uh, uh, new or exciting? I don't know if we should, uh, Kirsten. I don't know if we should do this now, but there's a there's a, a surprise. There is a spooky a... surprise. Well, first I should ask: Do we have a spooky soundboard or no? Uh, I could add in some spooky sounds. Should we pause for a few seconds for spooky build-up sounds? Uh, yeah, sure. Here, we'll just um, here I'll edit this in later. So, uh, just turn in the spooky knobs and uh, all right, flip the spooky ones and twos. Yep, just, uh, <laughs> I hit the, the, the big the big red button that says spooky. I've just pressed it. <laughs> spooky. spooky. I can I can drop a picture into chat. I told Christy I was uh, dressing for the occasion to set oh, the yeah. spooky ambiance. So. <laughs> Sending. Oh, that's amazing! Thank you. Hold on, I wait. was going to wear. <laughs> that is spooky. <laughs> I was it's... going to wear. I have. Um, I'm gonna mispronounce it, but I think it's like Kigurumi, the onesie pajama style kind of outfit, and it's a bat. But I was gonna absolutely sweat to death in that because it's 85 outside today. And then I was like, maybe a sweater. And then I was like, that's not going to work. So I have this jumpsuit that has skeleton bones printed on it. So we're doing that. I have the sleeves rolled up. So my arms look oddly foreshortened, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners can't see me. No, but they know that you're looking pretty spooky. And I think that helps. I'm going to pretend that I'm also wearing something spooky. Right. I've. Uh, What's your imaginary costume? Um, It's. I'm <laughs> I'm basically dressed for Halloween. I'm I've gone full zombie, including the creepy face paint with like the latex peeling off. Excellent. Frightening. And Leroy Very keeps scary. trying to eat my latex skin. <laughs> I'm gonna say that I've painted my whole body uh, orange and I have dyed my hair green. And you're like a pumpkin. What is... I'm a pumpkin man. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I was like, weird troll doll that I love. Can you say you've painted your face like a jack-o'-lantern? No, it's just my regular face. <laughs> I thought maybe you were going to do like chest paint, like you're going to a football game of the, you know, New Louisville fighting pumpkins. Yeah, I, actually, that I'll let's say let's say that instead now. I've, I've, I've changed my answer. Okay, so we didn't come to a consensus. There is a surprise spooky gift that that's contents have been withheld from me. Mm -hmm. Should we reveal this now or should we wait until we get into the main the main topic of the episode? No, we can go ahead and do it now. Dave, do you have it ready? Yeah, I have I, it. I have, I it, have it, it next to me. I have it in a black oh. zippered case next to her Ooh. Uh, for the grand reveal. Yeah, I had to ask him if it came in this case because it's kind of a nice case. <laughs> I was like, she didn't waste this case, did she? Um, Nothing sent to you as a gift would be a waste, Christy. Don't aw. talk about yourself like that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, only the one, um, the thing, the second one did not <laughs> arrive, unfortunately. Okay, I opened it, and this is amazing. <laughs> it's pretty cute. I'm going to have some questions for you. But... Can you narrate what it is for? <laughs> yeah. Yes. It is a tiny pumpkin that Leroy's very interested in, and... It says spoopy on it with three exclamation points. And it has like our address and everything on it. And the postage is directly on the pumpkin, which I knew you could do this with a potato. Mm -hmm. I've heard such things, but apparently you can directly post uh, squash <laughs> of various kinds if you ask them to put the postage on the pumpkin. Did you have to go into the post office to do this? 
Oh, please. No, I haven't left my home. There is a website that did it for me. Yeah, there's so it says on the side, it even thing. it even lists her as the sender. And I think that the yeah. what's the website again? It's on the pumpkin. It's like uh, send a squash. Postage something. pumpkin on Instagram. Postage. Yeah, you pumpkin. can post it and and tag them if you want. I think there are several websites that do this, but I saw this one recently. I know there's and one I decided for I, needed... I never thought about doing it with a pumpkin. That's really funny. It uh, um to <laughs> clarify, it is a tiny pumpkin. It's like uh, back off my pumpkin, dude. It's <laughs> like four inches, four or five inches from top to bottom. Uh. It's got a significant heft because it's a pumpkin, but it's super cute. Yeah. I was kind of hoping you had gone into a post office and had to explain to them that you wanted to post a whole mini pumpkin, but it's still good. So what according I, to the I website, like there's a dedicated website for this. Well, and according to the website, they grow the pumpkins. And this was like a 2020 emergence because people were not coming to the pumpkin patch. So they were like, we'll just take baskets full of pumpkins to the post office for you and and mail them directly you know, oh that's really funny my favorite part of it was and walking sweet, outside kind of. and just like hey there's just a pumpkin out here that wasn't here before <laughs> it was like Did the hooligan leave a pumpkin on my porch instead of stomping one they left yeah, it like on the handrail which was great. Like, it was just on the handrail. I'm like, what? Where did this pumpkin come from? We're going to put it back out on the handrail. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's to be displayed, of course. And leave all the postage on it. Um, just make sure they I, don't pick it up and try to yeah. return it to sender. Yeah. Well, you got to re remove the postage. For you sure. get a, then you get a return pumpkin. I really like thinking about our mail carrier having to deliver this pumpkin to us. Yeah. I, it seems like they enjoyed it since they jauntily put it on your handrail. There is yeah. another one coming, by the way, for Dave that is a slightly different pumpkin. I got Christy the classic pumpkin with message, and then I got Dave a party pumpkin. A <laughs> party pumpkin. I I just saw it on the webpage. I web need page. to know what a party pumpkin is. It so. looks, it looks hey, don't go exciting. looking at it. Come oh, on. Sorry, it's too late. Ooh. <laughs> sorry. 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 Uh, I, Wait, uh, how did you see it, Dave? Because well, we were he talking Googled about the website. It and he looked it up. But I don't know exactly oh, well, what it's going to look like. you looked up what a party pumpkin is. But you don't know what our exact party pumpkin looks like. Yeah, exactly. True. There is variance to the pumpkins based on their natural yes. growing. Pumpkins things. are not perfect clones of each other yet. Well, that was a nice uh, fall-themed surprise. Get back up here, Leroy, and don't <laughs> try to eat my pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> I now fear that at some point we're going to be recording and Christy's going to turn and scream and it's going to be Leroy with pumpkin guts all over his snout, just wagging his tail with a de-gutted You know pumpkin. what? That would be terrible, but it would be great Our fate is inevitable. Like it would, it it's, would, I don't want the pumpkin to be destroyed. It wouldn't surprise me one bit. It would be good <laughs> radio, essentially, is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, very spooky indeed. He does like to eat pumpkins, so... Uh, He's only had it from a can, so that would be a whole new experience. Yeah, I actually, I don't know if he could get through a pumpkin. I imagine he probably could. <laughs> oh, I trust that he could. Um, so, um, I think it, I was going to say. I kind of feel like playing, but it, no, it, what, it, you, no, it, no, you go. I'm going, I'm going through a tunnel. <laughs> uh, you're breaking up. <laughs> <laughs> no, you go. 
I was going to say, I kind of feel like playing a game. Uh, that's inconvenient because none has been prepared <laughs> and uh, there was no notice. And honestly, I would appreciate a little bit more heads up on this. Yeah, it's like we haven't done the same game for all 111 episodes prior to this. You know, I could probably scrap something together out of you know, you know, like leftover bits of string and stuff from previous episodes. <laughs> I believe in you. Okay. Well, how about this? I propose we play a game called Trues and Fnews. Oh my god, that sounds great. You mean to tell me, you mean to tell me why you wouldn't happen to me. It's time for Trues and Fnews. Everyone's playing, everyone's playing a famous game, famous game, the game that's taken the internet by storm. It's time for Trues and a Merv Griffin production. All right, let's play Trues and Fnuse. I always wait to hear the sound of the song, and then I remember that I I won't until I listen back. That's right. Do it in post. Do it in post. There, you know, it'd be nice to have a soundboard. You mentioned it earlier. It'd be nice to have some live sounds. Just you know, I haven't figured it out yet. I feel like this is inevitably like at episode 147, all of a sudden Dave's going to get the sound that's like, do, 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 and that's all we're going to hear for <laughs> 10 episodes until he gets tired of it. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> the thing is, if I get a soundboard or anything resembling it, it's going to ruin the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's no, just going to be Dave, the morning talk show DJ. Crazy guy and the <laughs> tiger. In the morning. Yeah, all of a sudden we just start throwing up our voices all over the place. And we're just like, Welcome back to Goose Chase Podcast. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> yeah. Let's it never makes do me that. think of crazy is it crazy Ira and the douche or crazy <laughs> yeah. Ezra? Crazy Ira and the douche. Douche nation. Crazy Ira and the douche <laughs> from Parks and Rec. I'm actually 53 years old, so I always think of Bulldog from Frasier. <laughs> Man, I need to watch Frasier again sometime. That feels like good pandemic watching. It's good, yeah. but it's also horrifying. And one of my favorite things I've seen on the internet in the last five years is a series of posts. And I think they're originally on Twitter and Tumblr, and then somebody posted them together somewhere else. But the first one is like, Amazing how the writers of Frasier, a show of an absolutely horrifying man who cannot talk to women, so the writers clearly do not understand women, gave incredible lesbian energy to the character Nigel, a man. And then the <laughs> next post is somebody else saying, um, I guess they talked to a writer at some point and the writer was like, well, here's the thing. We have like 22 minutes, right? Because you have to put in a commercial break. Yeah. We generally have to get the plot going within the first two minutes. And so we didn't have a lot of time to actually have Frazier say things to people. It was normally just his awful pickup line. And then it would say, she is charmed. And so it became a competition with the writers to just write something off the wall bonkers and then put, she is charmed. <laughs> as, the, <laughs> as the meeting. <laughs> That's insane. That's really great lore. <laughs> but that's like such I a choose to, to believe it's true. I believe if anybody at home is ready to debunk this, just stop. I don't care. Oh no, no, I totally wholeheartedly believe that's true. Yeah, that's my personal <laughs> that's the thing that writers 
on a show that they're like, you know, this is a job. Totally do. <laughs> they're like, let's make this fun for us. Um, so I have uh, cobbled together little bits of things here and there, and I think I might just have a news quiz. Little bits. I'm uh, charmed. <laughs> uh, would you guys like to play? Truzenfnus. Yeah, I would. Can you tell us what it is first? Because I don't think I understand. Oh, God. Yes, I almost thought helpful. I'd get away without doing it. <laughs> oh, never. Can you put, give me a spooky laugh after that? Mark it down. Mark the time. Yeah, yeah spooky. My response uh, needs to be a <laughs> Actually, I don't have a way to mark times in this, so let's just hope I remember. Um, <laughs> uh, so Can't you can't you put a marker on the track? No, not uh, not the way I'm recording our our, uh, our Discord episodes. Everything's all catawampus. Uh, oh, that's right. Mm. It's different. Anyway, so what's this game all about? <laughs> Trues and Fnews is a game. It's an old game. It's an ancient game. It's one of the oldest games in the entire world. It's a game in which I present to you three stories. Two of these stories are false stories. Fnews, one of these stories is a true story. Trues, you have to determine which of these new stories is the true story of the Trues or the false story of the Fnews. Nice. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yeah, it's a game where you like listen to me and then guess things. <laughs> all right. Good enough. <laughs> Um, I wasn't really going to make you do the whole thing again, but I, I just it thought it would be fun to be a jerk. I will. I'll do it again. I've done it three times in a row because of you. So, so <laughs> Trues and Fnews is a game. It's an old game. It's a very ancient game. It's one of the oldest games in the entire world in which I present to you three stories. Two of these stories are false stories. Fnews. One of these stories is a true story. The Trues. You have to determine which of the stories is a true story. Trues or the false story. Fnews. Very nice. I think I that was just, almost identical. That was frightening. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that, like... The concept that it's like an an ancient game <laughs> yeah. goes back as old as time itself. There's yeah. like people like sacrificing goats, and at the same time they're playing trues and fnews. You know why Just I added that detail? Because it's a very spooky episode. Yes, that's why I thought it would be make it to make it one of the oldest <laughs> games in human civilization. And it has a spooky by playing past. it we dredge up the spirits of the past. <sighs> Ah. <laughs> all all right. right, let's do this. Okay, here we go. News story number one. This week's online conference for the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology hit a wall when a profanity filter blocked participants' use of words like pubic, stroke, stream, wang, and more. Curiously, Johnson was okay. Two. One of North America's largest manufacturers of concrete, Old Castle Incorporated in Atlanta, Georgia, celebrated 60 years in business with a giant cement statue of its founder that cracked in half after one day in the sun. It was quickly reset and then fell apart again four days later. Number three, inventor Tim Muller of Boston announced via press release that he had invented a functional perpetual motion machine, but was publicly embarrassed when inspectors discovered a magnetic propulsion device installed in the design secretly by his son. <clears throat> wow. You know, I was going to say the first two were suspiciously long, but then all of them were suspiciously long. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this. That's a tactic. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's part of the M.O., right? So do you want to hear him again? Yeah. Yes. All right. Number one. This week's online conference for the Society of Vertebrate, Vertebrate Paleontology hit a wall when a profanity filter blocked participants' use of words like pubic, stroke, stream, wang, and more. Curiously, Johnson was okay. 
Number two, one of North America's largest manufacturers of concrete, Old Castle Incorporated in Atlanta, Georgia, celebrated 60 years in business with a giant cement statue of its founder that cracked in half after one day in the sun. It was quickly reset and then fell apart again four days later. Number three, inventor Tim Muller of Boston announced via press release that he had invented a functional perpetual motion machine but was publicly embarrassed when inspectors discovered a magnetic propulsion device installed in the design secretly by his son. Not very spooky, but, you know. Christy, do you have cracks at summaries? Because I think for once I might actually... (laughs) I have some half-formed ones, but if you have some, please go ahead. We can both do it, but I do have some. (laughs) I mean, Um, I think there's... It's amazing that Dave did not include a joke along these lines on the first one, but I think there's a very clear like paleontologist boned by overly strong, <laughs> robust word filter in there. Nice. No, but I'm not the punny one. She's the punny one. I'm the punny one. True. It's true. Um, no, I went like I went serious with it with the first one. I went censorship is the downfall of society. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, Because I thought it would be really funny to take such a serious take on that. But just to me, I guess. (laughs) The second one I wrote, concrete companies bad at what they do. True. (laughs) Trues. (laughs) And the third one I wrote, magnets still, they're perpetually motion. Okay. Totally cheap. Perpetual motion. How do they work? (laughs) (laughs) Miracles. How do they work? Everything is miracles. It's just there in the air. <laughs> if there's one thing that we believe in on Goose Chase podcast, it's miracles. <laughs> you're going to say magnets. We're really big magnet fans, too. I'm We're pretty magnet big magnet fan. fans. Did you have any other summaries for those? I feel like I had a I had one for the second one, but then I lost all of my audio with you and was frantically leaving and rejoining Discord for a few seconds, and I lost it. Oh, no. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's a tiny surprise that will help me later if I re-listen to this episode. I'll get to learn what happened in those 10 seconds. Oh. A mystery. Um, I'm trying to decide which one I think is, is true. I feel like this is not my strongest quiz. I, I, I don't know. They're, they're, I think they're all equally, like, odd. Like, they, they have a very similar feel to all of them, which makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess they're all kind of fails. Yeah. It is very spooky to think about, like, widespread public embarrassment. That is spooky. That's everyone's biggest fear, of course. I, I'm i going to be burned by this, but I'm going to go with the second one as being the true one. Okay. I like the poet- well because, go ahead. I was going to say, just like the poetic nature of, of a company, like the whole thing they do, they try to do it as like a big show of respect for their founder and it, they totally fuck it up. Like there's something magical about that. So I'm going to go with it. Okay. <clears throat> I think my joke summary of that one was going to be something around uh, the way that people drive past a construction site and they're like, why are five of those guys just standing? They're not doing anything. They could be working. And it's like, actually, they were waiting for the concrete to cure. And because they did not stand around and wait, it broke. That's right. Uh, you need people standing around doing nothing so that things and get also, done. And also, 
This is a, a very important, like, weird thing for me. So I'm going to speak on it for a moment more. But uh, manual labor is a very difficult person in your air-conditioned car. And so frequently, if you're doing something like digging out a post hole by hand, you yeah. do it mm-hmm. around and you take breaks. Those are important. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Especially in, like, 90-degree weather. Direct sunlight in yeah. safety gear. Yeah. Yeah, it's like really uh, I was easy leaning... to criticize that from your like cool car and be like, "What the? What are you guys doing?" So I was already leaning toward the third, and I like uh, spreading out our answers. So I'm going to go with number three. I think it was uh, a well-intended child. Okay. All right. So one vote for number two. One vote for number three. I stumped you. I actually stumped you because it was, in fact, a profanity (laughs) filter that kept the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology from actually being able to talk about paleontology in their online conference. I just didn't see why stream would be blocked. That's very bizarre. I'm not sure who they hired to implement their word list, but it was a very bad job. Yeah, yeah, I I also didn't see that one, although I think bone (laughs) might have been one of the words. What wasn't. got me was that they somehow found out that Wang was blocked, and I was like, "But why would that be their like? That would not be their first choice." It was someone's name, somebody's though. last name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that makes sense. I was stuck on the penis angle as I was usual. really stuck on stream. I was like, I don't understand what Ding Dong would put stream in a, a blocked word list. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I underestimated Ding Dongs around the world. Sorry. A uh, Ding Dong was definitely blocked. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, so> th- <laughs> I found this in a uh, in the it's actually so it was referenced in a couple of different articles. Uh, there's a uh, there's a article from The Guardian, uh, which uh, you can you'll you'll find quickly if you decide to Google it. But uh, yeah, the list uh, included bone, pubic, stream, beaver. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's more. Um, I think they just have a thing against beavers, the beaver and stream. Uh, you can't say Logs. damn What's hell. What's the status on damn? <laughs> yeah, damn. D- damn and hell are no good. Um, mm-hmm. Jerk, knob, erection, dyke, crack, and enlargement. <laughs> I want to know where they found the core word list for this, because this was very poorly implemented. Yeah, this is like bad design. Like, there's plenty of it's times you can use all those who, words. Someone who hates beavers. <laughs> <laughs> Or they hate paleontologists and they're like, stop coming here for your conference. Yeah. So, Go I mean, home. this is one of those things of like they had to do it online via COVID. So they had to have mm-hmm. like a hastily put together way to like, <laughs> you know, have an online conference that everyone's able to participate in and also keep people from bombing it or, you know, embarrassing yeah, someone. I was gonna say, at least they weren't Zoom bombed. Yeah. Right. I. God. Mm. I continue eight months in to be very distressed about how many people are just using Zoom, which they probably previously never heard of when there are many other alternate things to use that have these classic uh, authentication problems (laughs) that allow anyone on the internet to drop into their chat. But hey, the rest (laughs) of the world doesn't ask me to fix their security problems for reasons I still don't understand. (laughs) It's it's, 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 uh, it's hilarious. Even even the Senate, like the the confirmation hearings this week for the Supreme Court nominee, right? Like they have people calling in over Zoom in the Senate. It's so weird to me. I think we've had the best personal luck with Google Hangouts. But I well, mean, and on a corporate level, there have been many. I it it it, it uh, 
Um, we've had global corporations for a very long time now, and the internet has been around uh, post DARPAnet in its current configuration for literal decades. And so there have always been video and audio teleconferencing solutions. And yeah. companies refused to actually look into something useful until now. <laughs> And if they had like a, a you know cross the country uh, existence, that's on them, man. Why why didn't you prepare for anything? But I've asked that a lot about a lot of things this year. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think just everyone, you know, sort of uh, in 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 uh, unusual circumstances, people just kind of I don't know. They followed what everyone else seemed to be doing, um, regardless of whether that was I, the yeah, best. Yeah, I think it was a matter of the one that got popular first like and loudest like oh i heard but it got popular for having significant security and privacy yeah. issues and like not right. working most of the time so i just yeah, have like, to question people's Zoom reading sounded familiar for some reason so they just went with that <laughs> <laughs> they're like yeah i've heard of that in the news probably this yeah. morning maybe let's do that one. it must be because it's perfect and works so well and that's why the news <laughs> is talking about it that's why it's got that Big sleek vibe. name zoom yeah yeah, it sounds cool. Sounds fast. Oh man, kids love getting on the Zoom. Pew! Go to school. <laughs> Zoom. Um. Anyway, we're we're actually like coming in right around a half an hour here, so this is actually a great time for us to stop and take a break. Yay. Um And then I guess when we come back, we will have a very spooky episode. Spooky. It's good timing for a break because I need to reposition the dog because I'm going numb. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so we'll take a break. We'll be back in a bit with the rest of our spooky time episode. Ooh. Yeah, all right. Ah. back and we're back oh we're back. shoot i left my coffee out there <laughs> we're not back the well, coffee's not back no nope, we're back uh the coffee is not talk amongst yourselves oh scary situations okay. the coffee is upstairs but you're downstairs whatever will our protagonist do <laughs> <laughs> he has to venture up by himself in the broad daylight of mid-afternoon to recover his beverage. The, the haunted living room may trap him and he will <laughs> never return. That's, All right. I, I can't, oh, good, you're back. <laughs> oh, our hero returns. We I'm going to include that all in the episode. I'm not cutting it Oh, no, please that. do. It's, yeah. I was just worried because I was running out of things to riff on. I've never even seen the inside of your house. So I. I oh, that's right. I somehow wow. forgot that. <laughs> I want to try to picture what spooky encounters you might have on the way because I, I don't know where you're going. There is. The spider in the corner. There is. Uh, it's the, not the corner anymore. Where did it go? The haunted dog fur under the chair. Just imagine like a very suburban house built in the 60s that has like a half step up onto like, so there's like the 
I'm very and everything. And I don't think you should actually describe your floor plan for all of the internet. Like one day you <laughs> might true. get famous and you're going to be like, imagine a house. It's a ranch. It's at 6503. <laughs> sure. It has one floor and no cameras. And we go well, here alone be, by ourselves. It's nice in 60s. Let's a ma- just say a man approaches. His social security number is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah. Identity theft is very scary. It's on theme. Ooh. Ooh. Ah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Why don't we, why don't we <laughs> move on to our topic here, which is it's a very spooky one. It's even scarier than identity theft. Even Ta-ta-ta. scarier? In some related, maybe? Kind of. Uh, but first, I think we should make sure the listeners are ready. Do you have your candy corn or your other <laughs> Halloween candy nearby? Your candy pumpkins. Have you locked your doors? Yes. Have you closed your windows? Have you checked the news update running right now about an escaped convict right up your street? <laughs> have you looked behind you? <laughs> He's right there with a chainsaw. All right. It reminds me of the Looney Tunes movie. Oh, yeah, that guy with or the, the chainsaw. Or the Tiny Tunes movie. Yeah, the guy with the chainsaw. That guy with the chainsaw. <laughs> yeah. Mandor, foot court, car door hand. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, this is anyway. a very spooky episode <laughs> in anticipation of uh, Halloween in the middle of Spooptober. Um, and uh, I believe I know what it is. But why don't you why don't you introduce the topic, Kirsten? Well, uh, gather your blanket, cower in oh, the corner of it. your couch, and get ready to talk about debt. Very spooky. The scariest of topics. Possibly so, I think, for many people. Uh, it's also le- very frightening for me because I think it's the least uh, formal preparation I've done for an episode of this. But I figured if I were to prepare very thoroughly, I would just be giving you a book report on the book Debt, The First 5,000 Years by David <laughs> Graeber, which the last time I was here, I left off talking about. So that's right. I also... I also think that this is probably something that we can all riff on. At, at I was going to say, if there's <laughs> anyone who can who can riff on debt, I think it's us. So, <laughs> I wish I had looked up this statistic about like what percentage of households in the U.S. cannot afford a four hundred dollar or a one thousand dollar emergency, because that would have been good to start with. To point out that probably everybody could. I mean, I don't think there's anything unusual or significant about us. Yeah, oh I, no, I, I think the vast majority of people have have some relationship and familiarity with debt in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. I mean but I know specifically Dave and I definitely do. Well, you know, like <laughs> one thing there's like ordinary debt that I think most people have, right? You know, like everyone probably not everyone, but lots of us have maybe one credit card and maybe the balance isn't even that high, but like we have some debt and that's like regular day-to-day debt. And then there's like, if you get into the mess of having a house, that's a, a scary debt. It's a bigger debt, but it's like a long-term debt. And then there's, you know, college debt, which is like big and like, you know, relatively short-term, they expect you to pay it off. And so it's like even, and, and those balances can be Ooh. huge. And there's, like, all these different ways that debt, like, 
kind of makes its way into our lives, whether it's a car or a home or schooling or all that, you know, everyone has the, like some level of experience with it. The Ooh, thing I not. find spookiest is, which hopefully you, you will probably be touching on here is the conspiracy of debt. Um, and, and how we get into it and how we're kept in it. Uh, a little bit. I was going to add also, you know, who among us, but Dave Ramsey himself can say that we haven't had some sort of debt. Oh God! Wait, who's Dave Ramsey? <laughs> oh my gosh, you don't know who Dave Ramsey is? No. I am so mm -mm. excited. Wait, is he the money today's... dad? Well, mm, I don't think so. Okay. There's a guy who wrote a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad, which I have not read. It's oh. my understanding he advocates for literal tax fraud at some point in that book, and so I, <laughs> I have nice. not. I have not picked it up. Uh, Dave Ramsey. I'm so excited to get to explain this to you. Okay, I remember the title <laughs> Rich Dad Poor Dad, but I don't know anything about him. He is a pretty big figure in the personal finance world, and I am so glad that we're also talking about this in line with debt because it fascinates me as a concept and as a genre, as a, a career for some people. Uh, but his big thing is, so I've seen him basically used and offered a lot by churches as kind of a a, a framework, like they might do classes or they might buy his lessons and let everybody share them. I've heard a lot of people that are pretty active in their churches bring him up because he's used. And I think part of that is that he himself has a, a personal philosophy that is in line with a lot of churches, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. But his big thing is that like he wants everybody to buy a house with cash and buy their cars with cash. And a lot of this I'm like, OK, yeah, you know, save up for something and then buy it. Usually good. Um, Dave Ramsey, who is making <laughs> enough money to save up for a house? Yeah, sir. The the median income in this country is like sixty three thousand dollars a year for a household, my guy. Yeah, right. Like, I I think a lot of those these people who like talk about financial, you know, good financial practice and financial independence and all that. One of the things they drastically miss is it is nearly impossible to live that way unless someone set it up for you before you were around. You don't start Listen, with all this. Of these they have to work are... really hard to inherit that money, Dave. <laughs> right. <laughs> all of, like, the financial advice articles crack me up. Like, like it sounds like what Dave Ramsey is talking about, but also, like, I don't know, 20 year old 22 year olds who graduated college and are like how i paid off my loans in two years with no help except lots and lots of help and if i can do it you can too like uh -huh. the biggest linking factor is people failing to be able to check their privilege like you're not even seeing how much you're being handed here and you're telling me to do it too Except my parents didn't buy a condo for me well, when you, to rent out while I lived with them. When you look into those articles, they all kind of like, because I, I, I think everyone's kind of been like, all right, I'll take the clickbait. What is it? You know, and you open it up and it's like this kid, you know, had $100,000 in student loan debt. And by just putting aside 6000 a month, he was, and you go, wait, 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 what? Because they, like, move into a smaller condo that their family also owned, an Airbnb, <laughs> out their large family home that was also not necessary as a residence. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. And you're like, hold on, Th this might be useful to someone, but it's not. Okay, not so, the general populace. And my conspiracy theory on this is that the financial industry <laughs> is pushing all of this at us just to get their money back. That's really the idea. 
Uh, there are so many things to pick at, and that's why I figured I probably wouldn't have to prepare too much. I do want to <laughs> add that Dave Ramsey's full name is David Lawrence Ramsey III, which to me, out of hand, I, I don't know how much I care to receive financial advice from this person. But I would like to say a lot of what he says I agree with. I think that a lot of people kind of sit with him in this space where they say, this is really helpful for a lot of everyday people to do every day to change some base level habits. However, um, maybe not the buying a, a house in cash. Thing. Yeah, it's like it's a good kind of common sense financial advice. And the average person, it would probably help like a little bit. But you're not actually going to buy a house by saving up for it and buying it straight out like the average person isn't going to be able to do that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. His really big thing that I support very wholeheartedly, and I see a lot of people pick at, um, and I disagree with them in doing this, is he really supports uh, the debt snowball method. And so if you have, mm. let's say you have three credit cards, a student loan, and a car loan, and you're like, Dave Ramsey, I've called into your radio show. Please help me he kind of has two different ways that you might want to approach this. And one of them is avalanche, which is you look at all your loans, you sort out what their interest rates are, right? Because interest is going to compound every day that you have that loan. So mm -hmm. you pay more and more and more as the interest goes up. Mm -hmm. And the avalanche is you keep paying the minimums on all of them except one. And that first one that you work on is the highest interest rate. Because yes, on paper, this saves you the most money over time. Because even if it takes you six years to pay all of these off, you're cutting down how much you're losing to interest over those six years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The snowball method is, hey, you're a human being. You maybe don't have the best habits to doing this. And it's really nice to have rewards to help you build new habits. So you start and you pay the minimums on everything except the smallest debt. So if you have a $500 credit card, a $2,000 credit card, a $10,000 student loan, a $12,000 car loan, you start with that $500 and you pay the minimums on everything else. And then as much money as you can, you throw at that $500 credit card because you'll probably be able to pay that off a lot faster. And then you go, awesome, this feels great. I have mm -hmm. one monkey off my back with regard to my debt. And then you take the money that you were putting toward that one and you snowball it up into the next biggest loan. So then you work on that $2,000 credit card next. So now you have all that money that you were putting toward the $500 one every month in addition to the minimum payment that you were paying on it and you can pay it down. I get <laughs> so yeah. mad. Uh, I mean, I get mad on Reddit a lot, but frequently, <laughs> especially in the personal finance subreddit, there's always five people who are like, this isn't the most rational way to go about paying down your debt. You're going to pay five more thousand dollars over the six years it takes you to pay this off. But I do really think that Dave Ramsey has hit on something, which is that psychology is important. People need yeah. to feel like they're doing something. And especially if you, I mean, this all kind of <laughs> operates on the premise that like you're a stupid idiot and you got yourself into this debt and you need to learn better habits as opposed to a frame of mind that says you're, people don't get paid enough to live on. That <laughs> right. is targeting you. Yeah. Right. Um, but I mean, there are a lot of people like that. And what's very interesting to me is to give the listeners some background. Um, I grew up in a household that on a good year, our income was probably like $50,000, maybe 55 uh, annual income. And I am a first generation college graduate. I went to school with Christy. And uh, I started at the bottom. Now I'm here in the middle class and it's really weird. And I kind of hate it every day, all the time, because I feel like the reason we have so many of these articles that are like seven ways I paid off my student loans in two years 
they're the very like stop buying a Starbucks latte. If that's five dollars, yeah. you can save that by making coffee at home. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. I make my coffee at home with Folgers already, and I bought my coffee maker at Goodwill for four dollars. So yeah, give me something else here. <laughs> I, I think right. that uh, I think that there's like this mindset, and I, you you hit it on it a little bit of like it's condescending. People like in positions of wealth often condescend to people who are not. And, you know, they see all of that financial, you know, burden on them as their own problem. And I, I, I think it is kind of gross. Yeah. Um, and it's, I would add... that it, it's this idea that people who have financial problems, whether it be like they're completely destitute or, like you know they're functioning but barely or whatever range they fall into that they don't deserve small joys like small things that bring them joy because it costs five dollars to do it and that's a horribly damning thing like you see it a little more when when you see like homeless people who have cell phones and you always see people like whoa how do they have a cell phone (laughs) First of all, like we pretty much need a phone to function now. And oh, if- I I would add as well. Um, I'm pretty sure that it is a Reagan era movement that at some point it, it was would be necessary that everybody would get a phone. And so many yeah. years ago, it was a government program that was put forth that everybody could get hooked up with a landline that still Mm. exists today and i've met many people who have arguments with me about this because i point out that it's like a 50 year old program designed to make sure that people can access help when they need it and i will bring up things like how do i get a job if i do not have a phone to be contacted at and i've had somebody tell me email address access to an email address to respond or to like even apply for jobs like these are necessary It's not things. a luxury. It's not a luxury. No, it's not. And, but Dave, and, if they have iPhone and I have older iPhone, why why, why they do that? Why they have? <laughs> if they know have home, why have right, that's, anything? It's this like classist and oftentimes racist idea that we have that like it, it yeah. a weird thing, a weird... <sighs> I remember, like, like during the Obama years, people, have. people were really mad about this during the Obama years when they started to, like, more publicly make aware of that, like, program of, like, getting people access to, like, a cell phone. Oh, they started calling them Obama phones. And that's why I yeah. started that conversation by pointing out that this was the update to a very old program because people freaking hate it when I do that. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'll point out, like, this is just moving up from a landline. And in addition, for people who don't have homes, this allows them to have it. And then frequently, the only response that I get is like, well, I can understand a landline, but like, why a cell phone? And I'm like, um, well, if you don't have anywhere so you to mean put to a tell landline. Me, right. You mean to tell me that you're willing to deign that they might have a phone connection, but you're upset that it's portable? This is what you're mad about? <laughs> Sit down with yourself and explain to me why that makes sense. I could tell well, you. What's this idea that people have that like, well, they're clearly not as good as me because they're in the position that they're in and they obviously did something to get them there. It's so the why, assumption they, that why being should poor, they have something similar to what I have? Yeah, it's the and assumption that being poor or being indebted is due to a lack of industriousness or a lack of right. good decision making on the individual yeah. and a lack of understanding that there are many complex systems in place in everybody's life. Uh, I think there's another yeah. thing too, though, which is we went from cell phones being this like 
silly thing that came in a briefcase to being like everyone <laughs> had them and like relatively cheaply over yes, a really short amount of time. Fast. Yes, so like I kind of feel like from the time that like the smartphone was you know like first available when we first had like let's just say the launch of the first iPhone to like everyone has a smartphone is like like it that happened over like ten years right? Well, just think about the fact that like flip phones became a thing when we were essentially kids. Like when Dave and I were in middle school to high school, they started to get popular. Yeah, and then. Now, like, I remember a time then when smartphones started coming out and I was like, well, that's for people with money. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm on, like, my fifth one or something. Yeah. yeah. And it's completely normalized. And they're still expensive, but they're more feasible than they were when I first had a flip phone I shared with my mom that Dave sold me after he got a new one. <laughs> I thought I just gave you that. I didn't sell it to you. you I, I, I think you did. Christine is still me. mad over the $5 you charged her. No, he didn't even charge us. I just, I don't know. That was a detail I embellished for no reason. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I think this is a perfect trap for people's cognitive dissonance where like they allow themselves to treat that as like a luxury that, you know, someone you know should, shouldn't simply be handed. And of course the other end of that is, well, I'm paying for that. My tax dollars. Oh uh, Yeah. Um, if yeah, you are listening and you ever one time in your life have said you're welcome to somebody paying with EBT at a store, you need to leave. You need to stop listening. I don't yeah. even run this podcast and I'm telling <laughs> you to stop and leave and never interact with us again. I second Go it. think um, about yourself. Yeah, people are tricked into thinking that it, if someone has something that you have that they previously weren't able to have, that it takes something away from you. Yeah, and zero it sum. It just, yeah. like evening the playing ground and giving someone something to make their life a little easier doesn't do anything to harm you. And if you think that someone else having a more even playing field is going to like be bad for you, it just means like you're, you want other people to be below you and you're fucked up and just again, leave. (laughs) (laughs) So to backtrack a little bit, I want to add that part of the reason I brought the clickbait thing up is that I personally anecdotally Mm -hmm. feel like some of those behaviors are things that I only started seeing when I started working in like white collar salary jobs with people who were of a higher class than what I came from. Um, because I would see those people go buy a $14 meal every single day at lunch and I've packed my PB and J for the 10,000th time in a row, even though I'm sick of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, people do that. And I, I was, I was amazed. And you see this where people talk about, you know, we make $150,000 a year and we're living paycheck to paycheck. And I think that it's very hard to be somebody who came from a working class background and see that and not just be like, no, you, you're the idiot. <laughs> um, you're, you're making it that way. <laughs> so I can see how even if they don't intentionally mean to be condescending, somebody who's grown up as, you know, your family always lived a certain life and you're yeah. trying to help everyone, it, it winds up being very lost. I think McDonald's famously got roasted for this because in their work employee guidebook they had like health budgeting and it was like it didn't allow oh, for yeah. health insurance it, it didn't allow for uh, i'm sure they did both did sure. frankly <laughs> yeah i'm sure they did yeah uh both 
companies that consistently hire people under full-time don't provide them benefits and are fine with them needing to use state and federal resources instead of paying them more. But uh, (laughs) to get out of my anecdotes, I actually, I had this in my brain and I forgot to pull it up. So I'm glad Christy said something that tipped me off to remember it. There is an author named Tressie McMillan Cottom who has written a book called Lower Ed, but in addition, she's written some books of essays and she has a really excellent essay called The Logic of Stupid Poor People that if you Google this, it's on her site. You can just read it. Mm. And it talks about this thing where class and race intersect. And she talks about like, we hate poor people. First off, they're poor when it's easy to not be poor. And also they buy stupid things. And it talks about how what christy said you know we get mad because somebody buys a bath and body works candle when they could just have a non-nice smelling apartment if they're so poor and also things like well why does that person who isn't filthy rich have a louis vuitton handbag or whatever and we start to build this idea that there are like good poor people and there are bad poor people and she writes really well on it it's pretty short i recommend reading it but i wanted to read off part of the end summary Yeah, please do. Which is, at the heart of these incredulous statements about the poor decisions poor people make is a belief that we would never be like them. We would know better. We would know to save our money, eschew status symbols, cut coupons, practice puritanical sacrifice to amass a million dollars. And then talks about, you know, this idea that, you know, oh, there was a lunch lady who was rich and and nobody ever knew because she drove an old Corolla for forever. And But what we forget, if we ever know, is that what we know now about status and wealth creation and sacrifice are predicated on who we are, i.e. not poor. If you change the conditions of your not poor status, you change everything you know as a result of being a not poor. You have no idea what you would do if you were poor until you are poor and not intermittently poor or formerly not poor, but born poor, expected to be poor, treated by bureaucracies, gatekeepers, and well-meaning respectability authorities as inherently poor. Then and only then you will understand the relative value of a ridiculous status symbol to someone who intuits that they can't afford to have it. And I find that incredibly poignant when kind of looking back on my own life and having these people say, well, I would just do blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, bud, I didn't know anybody but my teachers who went to college. So I did a bunch of foolish stuff my entire first year. I brought a ton of weird stuff with me that I didn't need. Like (laughs) my entire life, day by day by day, was me being rocked by the assumptions that I had from TV shows about what college would be like (laughs) being adjusted into reality. And everybody else, pretty much, because I went to a private school, not knowing that this was significant. Like, they kind of just knew it. Like, it was fine. Yeah, like the stuff people assume. Yeah. Yeah. Think about that writ large, your entire relationship with money, your (laughs) expectation that you'll have food at the end of the day. Mm Mm-hmm. God. Yeah, I, I also was a first generation college student in my immediate family. But like my aunt had gone to college, but it was like 20 years before I had. So it was any information was outdated, but I had a little bit to go on. It wasn't maybe as big of like a culture shock, but it still was. I had no good advice because if no one around you has done it, it's like, sure, sign up for all those loans because how else are we going to do it? Like, yeah. Yeah. I think a when lot of something the language... is new, you make bad decisions or <laughs> silly decisions all the time because, like, you only know what's being like told for you to do by people who know more than you. And if the adults in your life don't know more than you, 
you take the advice where you can get it. And sometimes it's not reliable. You know, uh, just to just to like put uh, a, a different, a slightly different spin on this. <laughs> like, I think there is something about like financial like literacy that is missing even in even in family like like you know my folks both went to school um and i think they were relatively smart about money we didn't have a lot of it growing up and like they didn't you know like work jobs that were like really high paying jobs but like you know they did they did pretty well but i don't think i ever learned from them or from school until i got a lot older like what how how you're supposed to deal with money and and even still now like i look back at mistakes i made in the recent past and i'm still making and i'm like it feels like we should be teaching people in school better like how to i would add however that i hear this a lot and i guess i always wonder how much other people paid attention in high school because i am convinced that my former high school classmates say things like we didn't have this and i'm like yeah we did no yeah you're right people do misremember (laughs) a lot of stuff but like, well, I we didn't so have a class I, I was like... talking to someone recently about this, and they were talking about how they like had to take home ec in high school, and how they learned a lot of stuff from home ec, and like, regardless, you know how much sunk in at the time, they did get it. I yeah. didn't have to take home ec because I was in choir. And at our school, if you <laughs> were in choir, yes, if, if you were in <laughs> choir or band, you didn't have to take home ec or like shop. And I don't know why they equate things that give you life skills with, I mean, not that choir, obviously I was in choir and I loved it. And I, you know, band is great too, but like shop home ec is short and home, for ec. home economics and yes. that is where you would learn those things right yeah. those are not the same thing as like the arts and so i don't know why you're equating things that could have given me life advice and also there was like a like um like sex ed was thrown in there too i got sex ed in middle school but i didn't get it in high school <laughs> because it was lumped into Home ec. I mean, I guess I had it in health class a little bit. I thought you were going to say, well, I didn't have to have sex ed because I was in band. Because I was in, I was in <laughs> band. I, was in and we just yeah. I think they threw some into like the home ec class that I didn't get in my health class. But it, it, the things that I missed because I took a different class, it, it, I do think they should have been more standard requirements. But mm-hmm. some people did get some information in high school. Like it, it is also, offered. It's just maybe not a requirement for everybody. Yeah. Well, and and to get back into that systems thing, how long ago did home ec used to be mandatory, and why did we start stripping it? And how much have right. we made it a gender thing? And oh, how yeah. many right. like high school boys would never take it because that's for cooking right. and sewing and girls or whatever? <laughs> and so, uh, again, my thesis is that you know I don't think we should have to be able to pick which IRA option is the best for our retirement, I think that maybe it shouldn't be so incredibly convoluted the same way that our taxes are the way they are because of industry lobbying by people like TurboTax uh, to keep them complicated so that they can make money. So they have a job. Is that appropriate? You decide. That's a good point. Like a lot of this stuff doesn't have to be the way that it is. And, and, uh, 
I don't know, like the mathematics of debt and the way that, you know, interest works and certain fees work and all these things that are like just behind the curtain that people kind of know are there, but they don't really understand what's happening with their money. You know, like I, I wholeheartedly believe that it's a system that is intentionally set up to trip people up mm -hmm. and to keep people tied up in debt because there are people that that benefits and the people it doesn't benefit often don't realize it's happening. I'll tell you what, my first realization of exactly how cruel the banking system can be was when I had like made four transactions in one day and one of them bounced and then received four $32 overage charges back to back mm -hmm. because all the other ones were also pending. So everything oh, yeah. bounced because one thing bounced. I remember when that happened, I was like, oh my God, how is this how it's supposed to happen? Like, it's yeah. very recent that legislation, I think it was legislation, it might be policy, I don't know exactly who came down on this, but somebody somewhere mm -hmm. within I think the last 10 years made it so that your bank has to arrange your transactions in a way that doesn't purposefully do that. Like if you yeah. put in money and you, you deposit $1,000 and then you take out $500 in that day, they cannot take out that $500, say, well, you didn't have $500 and then settle up the thousand dollars after they've charged you another three hundred dollars of fees yeah like, that is very recent yeah because it was just fine for them to do that as their policy and then say well that's our policy like we settle everything with the deposit last yeah and that was okay for for years i would bet that if that's not decades my, my mom once, probably my mom once got into a bad situation because she had a, a credit card for like a store and she paid her bill and she had deposited her paycheck into her bank account. And then the check she wrote to the credit card company bounced and she couldn't figure out why because she had the money. The money was there. It turns out the bank deposited my mom's check into someone else's account. And so the money wasn't there. But because the check bounced, it didn't matter that it was the bank's fault. Because the check bounced, her debt with that credit card company was immediately due and went into collections. And because I had an account with my mom that it had my mom's name on it, but it was my money, they were able to take my money out of my account to pay her debt. That wasn't her fault because her bank messed up, but nobody cared because that's their policy. And these things just happen all the time. And the people in charge don't care and they don't make allowances because it doesn't hurt them. Well, and frequently you're dealing with the teller who's probably also only making $13 an hour to have to abide by right. a whole bunch of regulations. And the people making the right. decisions the person are on the phone way up is just somewhere doing else. their job. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, the, the, uh, in a separate occasion, I had uh, at the bank, I had, I, I think I'd bought something online once, right? And they posted the charge for it twice, which immediately put my account in, in the negative, right? I remember having to go to the bank and be like, no, look, this is an identical transaction and essentially beg them to credit it back to me. Why should I have to, you know, why should I have to beg them not to charge me for some mistake like this when it's really obvious? Yeah, I yeah. overdrew my account one summer because I wasn't getting my statements and I unintentionally started sobbing in the lobby of the bank. So I would like to say a shout out to the mysterious blonde <laughs> teller who waved a bunch of my fees for me that time. I still have that bank account uh, in part because 
it used to be a student account, so it has a lot fewer fees than if I were to open a regular one because mm. it kind of got grandfathered in. And partially for that, which I know is probably misplaced loyalty, but it's not really. It's just my like checking but, account that my paychecks get deposited into. So like, but that's I important though. That. That's, an, that's an important point, which is being shown a little bit of kindness and humanity is now getting that bank business you might have otherwise taken elsewhere, which oh, is I'm maybe sure not they're investing completely. thousands upon thousands of my dollars and making money off of them. So I'm sure they're still getting the better right. end of the deal. But that was, I appreciated right. it a not, lot. <laughs> it's not completely 100%, you know, on topic. But I do think it's important in general that like, you know, actually acting like you care about people. It's good business. And, and goes, you know, it does good things for you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's I hope business. she didn't get in trouble because I thought at first <laughs> yeah. she was kind of just ignoring me, but I think she was kind of quietly just furiously typing and she was just like, okay, here's this. This is what I could do. How's that? And I was like, oh my God, thank you. That's great. <laughs> great. And I like sniffled my way out of the but like thing. right there. That's that's a that's a perfect example of like if this is something they can do at, at discretion. Why in the hell do we live in a world where it's normalized, you know, to be punished by, you know, the financial institutions that you that you belong to? Why, yeah. Like, why, if that's something that someone can do at their discretion, is the the routine normally being punished for not having money? Well, I well, think this is a good opportunity for me to, um, I want to read you part of the introduction to the book Debt, because uh, it, it, it rocked my world when I picked it up and started reading it. Mm. He really opens with a great anecdote, and <laughs> I... I honestly try to do some research about like how much of a book I'm allowed to read before I'm violating something. Nah. And it seemed like if it was a small section, it was fine. And this book is 500 and some odd pages long. So I think it's a small fraction and it's okay. I think you can get away with it. Fine. <laughs> so the book is by David Graeber. Um, he opens by talking about being at a party, basically. Like he, he kind of just winds up at this party because he knows one person there right and it's the mm. classic oh i only know one person there crap and his friend is the host and says oh um this person isn't in turdy but more of the activist kind and i'd like to say that david graber uh may you rest in peace also was involved in a lot of occupy wall street type of things so he he had a reputation as being a very rabble-rousing kind of person i think most of his life he was an anthropologist and he is kind of credited with coming up with We Are the 99%. He insists oh. that it was kind of floating around, but he did help like publicize some of that. So okay. his his friend introduces this person and says, well, they're an attorney, but they're more of an activist kind. You know, she works for a, a legal support anti-poverty group. So you, you'll, you'll have a lot to talk about. And uh, here. We chatted. She told me about her job. I told her I had been involved for many years with the global justice movement, um, you know, she asked some questions, asked if they accomplished much with all of these, you know, tear gas demonstrations, all sorts of things. And he says, actually, I think it's kind of amazing how much we did manage to accomplish in those first couple of years. And he says that they, uh, in his words, managed to almost completely destroy the IMF. As it happened, she didn't actually know what the IMF was. So I offered that the International Monetary Fund basically acted as the world's debt enforcers. So... He goes into background, explains how in the 70s, OPEC countries put a lot of their new money into Western banks. The banks couldn't figure out where to invest all this money. Citibank and Chase therefore began sending agents around the world trying to convince third world dictators and politicians to 
take out loans. At the time, this was called go-go banking. How they arrived or how they started out at extremely low rates of interest that almost immediately skyrocketed to 20% or so due to tight U.S. money policies in the early 80s. During the 80s and 90s, this led to the third world debt crisis. How the IMF then stepped in to insist that in order to obtain refinancing, poor countries would be obliged to abandon price supports on basic foodstuffs or even policies of keeping strategic food reserves and abandon free health care and free education. How all of this had led to the collapse of all the most basic supports for some of the poorest and most vulnerable people on earth. I spoke of poverty, of the looting of public resources, the collapse of societies, endemic violence, malnutrition, hopelessness, and broken lives. But what was your position, the lawyer asked. About the IMF, we wanted to abolish it. No, I mean about the third world debt. Oh, we wanted to abolish that too. The immediate demand was to stop the IMF from imposing structural adjustment policies, which does all the direct damage, managed to accomplish that. The more long-term aim was debt amnesty, something along the lines of the biblical jubilee. As far as we were concerned, I told her, 30 years of money flowing from the poorest countries to the richest was quite enough. But, she objected, as if this were self-evident, they'd borrowed the money. Surely one has to pay one's debts. It was at this point that I realized this was going to be a very different sort of conversation than I originally anticipated. And he talks about, you know, how do I start? These loans were taken by unelected dictators, and then, you know, the people are on the hook for paying them back. They have to basically take food out of people's mouths in order to pay them back. Talks about the difference between uh, demanding things to refinance a loan or offering a refinancing that benefits anybody, all and on and on. And he says, actually, the remarkable thing about the statement, one has to pay one's debts, is that even according to standard economic theory, it isn't true. A lender is supposed to accept a certain degree of risk. If all loans, no matter how idiotic, were still retrievable, if there were no bankruptcy laws, for instance, (laughs) the results would be disastrous. What reason would lenders have not to make a stupid loan? And so he, he talks at length about how this would devastate a lot of things about our society if that were true. And then, you know, somebody drunkenly walks up and interrupts their their conversation but he keeps thinking about this you know surely one has to pay one's debts and he explains and this is kind of the setup of the book is that it's not really an economic statement it's a moral statement Mm -hmm. judging people on morality and saying that paying your debt is this big underpinning of your personal morality and you know this is just bad as breaking a promise breaking a deal on and onward and uh Yeah, I I sat with that and I like closed my Kindle and I set it down and I tend to read before going to sleep. And I was like, I don't think I could read this right now. (laughs) No, that's so incredibly heavy. Yeah, I feel like that's a statement that like is just accepted. And you're right. It's like a really moralistic statement that it's like, I feel like that is ingrained in me. Yeah, and I, and because that idea is just like ingrained, it's deeply ingrained it's in the just working accepted, class. This is a good time, I guess, to discuss that. Like, I had some loans that went into collections after I graduated and couldn't pay them, and I felt so bad that they went into collections. Like, I I felt bad that I couldn't pay them. I felt like a bad person for not being able to handle my shit. Like, so much guilt and over the years and the good the good news happy feeling part of this is like the loans that are in collections are now basically settled i was taken to court for both of them and i'm handling my last settlement now but like i internalized that so much because i believed that statement that like one has to pay their debts (laughs) 
And it, yeah. like the second part of that statement that isn't said but is implied, and you're a bad person if you don't. I, yeah, yep, but I then we right. don't apply that in many instances where companies are allowed to back out of contracted right. deals to do things like build or buy buildings, and they just you know, yeah yeah we're not supposed to worry about what is it chapter eleven or whatever <laughs> where they're just restructuring so it's fine. But in that event, they're still settling a lot of debts with creditors who were expecting that money, and think, we're like, but it's good yeah, business. It's smart really, business. That's a really big best difference in philosophy, isn't it? It's like. If I, 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 at the risk of like caricaturing people with money or business businesses for how they operate, I do think that like regular working class people, ordinary people, do see this, you know, sort of as just like you know, well, what's right is my word is my bond and blah blah blah, right? And okay, fair enough. In most things, that's a good philosophy. But I, I think that if you have money or you're used to having you know, money or that you're operating with a larger amount of money, what is morally right is just whatever the ends up agreed to in the courts, right? Or like whatever is litigated away as your responsibility or not your responsibility. I don't know if there's the same sort of thing of my my word is my bond or my honor or whatever well, kind of thing. Morals are that. sort of taken out of the picture because it's like, well, if it's a corporation, if it's a business, it's, just it, business. it's not a person, so it's not morals. Right. It's what's legal, and those are I'm two smart very for different things. I'm not paying things. my taxes using all of these perfectly that, legal loopholes. That's it. Yes, yes. <laughs> that pisses yes. me off. It. I, uh, <laughs> Christy, did you ever have to take um, managerial accounting or like business accounting? No. Okay, so for some reason in my major, I had to take business accounting and managerial accounting. These were my two worst grades. I never wanted to take any sort of accounting. I thought That's that so I would get odd, off scot because their majors weren't that different. Yeah, very strange. Don't understand why it was there, but I certainly wouldn't have taken it if I wasn't forced. And it it was already a hard concept for me to grasp because again, like these very different ingrained concepts of money. Like to me, mm-hmm. Budgeting and balancing a balance sheet should be, I got $1,000 this month. I spent $800. I can choose to save the $200 or I can put it towards something or I can do whatever with it. And then you put me in a managerial accounting class that's focused at like business balance sheets, talking about depreciating assets and leveraging leveraging <laughs> debt. And I'm like, yeah, I'm lost. And it was made even worse by my professor repeatedly, I swear, hand on a stack of whatever book (laughs) multiple times he would turn away from the whiteboard and be like and this isn't illegal this is these are all on the books this is just a way to be smart about how you're laying out your money in these different ways it's not hiding anything and i'm like why are you so defensive well that's like that's like a conversation that happens in the mob is like yeah no this isn't strictly illegal but you know don't get caught doing it but it's not strictly illegal and also if you have the power to do things like to do things like lobby for loopholes or to lobby for the loosening or adding of restrictions and things like that. And then you turn around and do that. I don't know. It just feels very much like the the sort of truism of if if it's not illegal is your only argument for something, it's probably a bad thing that yeah. you're doing. Like that's yeah. a bare minimum thing to me is well, to say it's not illegal. Well, it's just ridiculous to listen to people that are like, well, yeah, this is okay for us to do because we browbeat people in the legal system to say that it was okay for us to do. So it's fine. It's not bad. Big We're thanks okay. to my friend Elena for tutoring me in both of those classes because I <laughs> ooh, I struggled. 
gosh yeah it's i don't know like it's it's it does just kind of strike me that like people and businesses or people and wealthy families like that are like so somehow beyond just being ordinary people you know they we just act differently we just see all of this stuff very differently and i i think that i think there's a reason that like you know i don't have i I don't have a lot of like biblical knowledge right but like all the way you know back to like jesus's times people were like no this system of like yeah you know usury yeah usury and abuse with money is like it's not just like mean it's a sin this is bad get it out of our lives you know yeah baby that's in this book too i'm so excited you brought it up uh, <laughs> if my in dad particular... is listening he uh he he'll he'll probably be impressed about that one <laughs> good job uh yeah he uh graber brings up frequently throughout this book you might have heard me mention biblical jubilee and as yes. well the mm-hmm. concept of usury and i found it very interesting that So I really struggled. I tried very hard to find a pretty succinct article or essay drawing a line here because the book kind of does it. But I really want somebody to do and explain like I'm like 20 version of this. Um, There are a lot of conspiracy theories regarding Jewish people as like secret runners of the world. Right. This is actually what the lizard people conspiracy frequently is is basically saying. They're saying lizard people, but they mean Jewish people. And Mm -hmm. As far as I can tell, you can trace this back to the Middle Ages, wherein especially the Catholic Church and many Christian churches and people within them could not give out loans that had interest. That was usury. Mm -hmm. You should not benefit from giving a loan to someone just because you gave them the loan. That was a sin. You went to hell. That was it. Um, So, you know, who could? Uh, Jewish people. And so Uh... you would basically, uh, there's a passage in the book uh, and he says, historically, there have been only two effective ways for a lender to try to wriggle out of uh, this debt issue. Uh, so you either shunt off responsibility onto some third party or insist that the borrower is even worse in some way. So in, med- in medieval Europe, for instance, lords often took the first approach, employing Jews as surrogates. Many would even speak of our Jews, that is, Jews under their personal protection. And uh, that usually did mean that typically they would deny Jewish people in their area any other way to make a living. And then they would say, but you can be our accountant. You can oh. give out these loans. Eh, we'll look after you. Like, you can't get a job anywhere else because we forbid you to. So no. you should do this. And so it, it, oh, man, it was buck wild for me to read this because I, listen, in seventh grade, when we read the diary of Anne Frank, many people were very confused, including me, as to how anybody could tell if a person was Jewish. Because in my classroom, in a very rural white area, we had not known any Jewish people. We did wow. not have a concept. We understood vaguely this was a religion. And so we're like, but how do you know? Like, how do they? Why, what? Right. Yeah. And so our, yeah. our teacher, Blesser, had to try to explain that this is like an ethnic group as well. We were very perplexed. So I'm oblivious to all of this. And I crack open this book. And on page 11, I'm into this. And I'm like, oh. Well, it makes sense to me that if we considered this over a long part, period of time, you know, other pejorative tropes that I've heard, it it seems like simultaneously Jewish people are always very rich or always very poor. Um, I've heard in a talk from someone at the Jewish Museum of Cleveland, she said that people like in her elementary school said like, oh, do you have a necklace with gold in it? Because I guess the idea (laughs) was that Jewish people. Yeah, I've heard that one too covet gold so much they wear it on their person I, i've heard uh, that but, that's but what does it mean thing. if you say that 
What does it mean if you say that after you force someone into being your money lenders who do the sin of con- collecting interest on loans so that you don't have to do it? Yeah, and yeah, then, like, it's it's really deplorable to like force someone into a position and then judge them harshly to the rest of the world for what they do that you're making them do. Yeah, they're still they're still dragging these stereotypes out. Like they're still yep. doing that. It's infuriating. On this note, I would love to recommend the podcast American Hysteria. They did an episode that's just titled The Illuminati, and then there's another follow-up after that where they talk a little bit about this as well. And this way that Jewish people consistently come up as like running Hollywood and masterminding the global banking system. But arguably, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of history behind this group being forced into a state of this and also being shamed for it because in the other group's religion, it's sinful. Yeah, isn't it yeah. funny how, like, the true story makes so much more sense than all the, like, ridiculous BS that is said about Jewish people to this day? It just makes so much more sense of just, like, oh, yeah, of course, exploited by other people and then and then dragged in the mud for it, too. Well, and for me, it's, like, um, that idea that it it's it's not causation. Like, it's correlation versus causation. Yes, there are Jewish people, a lot of Jewish people in the financial world, but it's not, it's a correlation or like the cause is different than what we think it is. The cause is because they were forced to do something because they were the ones that could do it. And now we're blaming them for it. Great stuff. Amazing how many times that happens throughout human history, huh? Yep. (laughs) Debt is getting scarier and scarier <laughs> as we talk about it. As we talk about, like, money really Ooh, is the spookiest stuff. It was kind of a joke when we decided to talk about this for, like, you know, Halloween times. But it really is actually upsetting. <laughs> it's it's deeply upsetting because I think in part, you know, it's something that we all interact with every day. And so yeah. there's always a way to take it home with you in a way that, a, you know, maybe a ghost story to some people might be. Um, I, I think that I... <laughs> I ruined myself on like monster movies too early. And so I have had a lot of conversations about how jump scare zombie movies, for example, don't really scare me. But man, you put me in front of like the first time I saw the first Saw movie, I was horrified for weeks because the idea of a person doing something like this feels real to me in a way that other things don't. And I think it's the same way with debt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, Debt is yeah, not it's, only it's, a, a very human invention and a uh, a personal, you know, leverage on other people, but it's everywhere all the time. Yeah. It's very real and it like it's a big part of our own lives and so it's more horrifying. I I think the injustice of it all personally hit me when I realized like obviously I already had things in collections, I already had student loans. And then I had a student loan forgiven, which sounds great. Um, (laughs) I had a student loan forgiven that I didn't even know existed. At some point, they stopped asking me for it. This is great. And if they don't pursue it, if the person loaning it or the company loaning it doesn't pursue it, I think it's for five years or more, they can then forgive it, which they essentially get as a write-off. And that's that sounds like a great thing for the person who owes it, even though I I had lost track of it and didn't even knew, know that I owed it. Did you get a um, big tax bill? 
Yeah, except for the fact that you were responsible for that debt that was forgiven as income. Yeah. <laughs> um, so surprise, it looks like I made an extra $12,000 that I didn't make, but I'm responsible for it. And on top of that, maybe that would be a little less startling if I remembered that $12,000 even existed, but I didn't. <laughs> and you usually get these... Um, notices that your debt has been forgiven after I filed my taxes because <laughs> it's like I tend to file early and so I got it after I filed and I was like seriously I I don't know what I'm gonna do because now I owe them money and it just hit me how unfair the system is that like we were all told to take out student loans and we weren't really told how bad it was going to be. And you can't, um, you can't go bankrupt for student loans. So you don't really have a way out, but then they go into collections and then you could be taken to court and then uh, they can garnish your wages if it goes that way. And then if they're forgiven, which is kind of what you're told you would like to happen, mm -hmm. um, you're still responsible for them, at least in some way. And you you don't have that income, so you can't afford being responsible for them being forgiven. <laughs> and so it's like this weird cyclical system that is like, oh, of course this just exists to keep people in debt constantly. It's like if someone gifted you a goat and you're like, <laughs> I didn't really want this goat. Now I'm responsible for this goat. This goat, I have to maintain this. This goat is ruining my life. Who gave me this goat? This is a $12,000 goat <laughs> that I can't afford. <laughs> it's like, thanks for the gift, which is a thing I have to, now I'm responsible for, and is causing me more trouble. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking a lot about this thing that we started to touch on earlier, but it does seem really important, is that um, when people lend money, and that risk they assume when they do it, it's it you know if we if we don't like assume that lenders are making responsible decisions you know i mean i i guess like that's the kind of thing that led to like the giant housing crisis and stuff right like, yeah when lenders well kind make... of there was certainly more to that in the vein of uh i mean finance groups passing off things to each other and also finance yeah. groups believing that this this incomprehensible computer program must certainly be doing something really good without <laughs> checks and balances on that but yeah also that um <laughs> and i would add that i looked into this a little bit and it doesn't seem clear to me that pretty much anybody got uh, a repayment or forgiveness in any way so if somebody talks you into taking on a variable rate mortgage in 2007 mm. says that they can totally approve you for all this money. At some point, a lot of people, you know, I, I think that there is a little bit of personal responsibility here in stopping and thinking, you know, I, I make 18 grand a year. Can I really afford a $200,000 house? Yeah, but also true. at the same time, these structures are held up as all knowing. And, you know, we say that banks don't want to take chances on money. They won't get back and things like that. And so at what point is a person supposed to like out research Goldman Sachs in yeah. respect to a mortgage right. well it's expecting someone who maybe their family has only ever rented because they couldn't afford a home and you're expecting them to know more than the people who are trying to convince them that it no that's perfectly fine and you kind of defer to people who seem to be the experts because they should know 
Yeah. They're, you're not trying to get me to do something I wouldn't be able to pay for. What's the point of that? Yeah. Like Except you, that is exactly the point. You would never. Because that's ever, how they make money. You would not assume if a bank says you're approved for a loan, <clears throat> that comes with it. A very real assumption that they think they should be giving you that money. That's not like a right. crazy assumption. <laughs> like, if they think that I can afford this, then I can afford this. Yeah. They're the experts. <laughs> and it's weird to now realize exactly – I'm sure it still happens now. Like people offering money that maybe they realize there's a sizable you know, likelihood that they won't get back and having to second guess what's you know offered to you. Just, I don't know, it seems almost counterintuitive, but, like, in light of everything that happened, you gotta be skeptical. It is really scary. <laughs> um, I, uh, I don't know. I think, I, I think about, like, things like indentured servitude. Like, there was a time when it was super regular to just be like, alright, um, in exchange for money, I'll just work for you for, like, years? Like, I don't even know if I understand that. It's like debt with your time. Boy, can I make a book suggestion for you? (laughs) Um, (laughs) In addition to debt, which touches on it, I would also say I read a book that I think the main title is just white trash. And then it's like the something thousand year history of something, something, something. And I'll say it's pretty dry, um, but it was interesting to me. Yeah, (laughs) it's amazing, honestly. Um, It was interesting to me to read it in large part because... I think that we look at like only now are we starting to reckon with the potential that uh, people who are descendants of the Atlantic slave trade in the U.S. should have some sort of reparations because they were held at a disadvantage for an exceedingly long time, Mm -hmm. not just having been enslaved, but also all these other things that we did. And I think that we hold that up as a dichotomy sometimes where there were like rich white people who came here and have lots of things. And then there were people who were bought as enslaved people who were given nothing Mm -hmm. uh but the book kind of touches on there was this middle ground because of course if you're a a nice rich white person you maybe don't want the slaves to do certain things for you so you bring in indentured servants and it's not the same thing Mm -hmm. but it is well you're gonna work for me for 30 years and you can pay me back and i am gonna still charge you like rent uh and you are gonna work for me all the time and so she the author draws a line in this to how, oh man, this this crosses into one of my favorite things to get into conversations <laughs> with people about, which is I grew up in an area that many people who have never been to it and maybe aren't even Southern themselves will tell me it's not Southern. But we have to talk about how there were the Southern plantation owners who mm. have a distinct Southern culture, but also there is a Southern culture of the poor white people and the enslaved people who... <laughs> brought that out and brought it to many other places with them because if you own a plantation even after slavery is ended you have a lot of land you have a lot of resources they were never really forced into turning a lot of that over frequently they were able to turn to things like sharecropping where they still made a lot of money off of other people living on their land and farming their land anyway Mm -hmm. but there were also these people who we talk about things like the black migration we talk about things like company towns And so this book touches on all of that sort of stuff. Like what happened to the people who lived in this third chunk and had to do things like go work in coal mines because they still didn't have wealth. They still didn't have equity. They didn't have resources. They were still at least not enslaved people, right? But they were 
they weren't set up to win on this one either. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's like the, the I don't know, like like our modern narratives about a lot of this stuff are probably like super, super. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they're minimal. They don't really like <laughs> it's probably easy to forget about people like that in the scheme of like what happens when, you know. Well, there's definitely a, di- a, a strict dichotomy when you talk about that because you do typically just think of the slave owners and the slaves and then okay there's no more slaves but you don't really think about the fact that those slave owners still existed and you know they still had their money and their businesses and someone still had to do the work and of course they're not going to suddenly stop taking advantage of someone they're just going to do it in a way that is still legal but not good found the book, we don't really way. think about that it's uh it's white trash the 400 year untold history of class in america by nancy eisenberg thank you yeah Interesting. I, I, I shared it to the discord i gotta start taking note of these books so de- uh i want to i, I want to uh bring it up again debt the first five thousand years that's the name of the book that you were talking about earlier yes yeah this is like already on my list but i really gotta get this book just... And the author's last name is Graeber, G-R-A-E-B-E-R. David Graeber. The first 5,000 years. See, that really, like, that's <laughs> that's an ominous title, isn't it? Yeah. Just... It's interesting because I think the topic is very heavy, um, but I the main undercurrent of the book is actually that debt is kind of how we have always operated, and he uh, talks about how we have this myth of... Well, if we didn't have money in the before times, you would have had to bring your chickens and your eggs and your potatoes and your leather and your daughter and whatever. <laughs> and if you needed copper, you would have had to hope that somebody needed it or set up a multi-way trade. And no, what he says is actually, uh, like I said, he's an anthropologist. And so there are kind of two aspects to this book. One is just a historical write-up of here are all of these primary sources about what we did regarding debt. And the other one is certainly the author's undercurrent of he he presents it as kind of everyday communism and this expectation for much of our lives that we were in debt, but we were in debt in a very networked way. And so instead of having to bring your potatoes and your corn and your all the other things, he he suggests that it would be more like, hey, John, I really need a new pair of shoes. OK, Bob. Oh, here. Uh, scenario one. Henry walks up to Joshua and says, nice shoes. Joshua says, oh, they're not much, but since you seem to like them, take them. Henry takes the shoes. Henry's potatoes are not at issue because both parties are perfectly well aware that if Joshua were ever short of potatoes, Henry would give him some. That's it. That is debt, but it's not capital D debt the way that we talk about it now because it's not the same thing. What we have now is debt held across strangers using an elaborate computer-based credit worthiness system (laughs) that has all of the issues baked into it. I mean... I could recommend books for a mile about the concept of like racism getting baked into software mm-hmm. and things like that. And so instead of just being the town debt system in which we're probably all kind of indebted to other people. Yeah, it was like debt with a handshake and a hug versus debt with signing on a dotted line. Or like debt as a uh, expression of relationships. <laughs> Or uh, yeah. or like uh, like the transactionality that's kind of just inherent in being a person and being around other people. 
Well, it's yeah. debt as a community responsibility. Yeah. I, and- I called the first thing scenario one because he also presents an alternate scenario in which, I mean, these are all kind of based on different cultures. I think in this book, he writes about a culture where um, I would never repay you exactly what I owed you because I want our relationship to continue. So if I needed sugar and yeah. I said, Christy, I need a cup of sugar, you'll give me a cup of sugar. And some other day I might say, hey, I have some sugar with you and I might give you a half cup or I might give you a cup and a half. But I would never give you back your cup of sugar because now we're done. Uh, but scenario yeah, two it's is... It's a perpetual debt system in which there's an understanding that like, no, I want to continue working with you. And so yeah. I'm going to keep us tied by this fact that I that I still owe you a little something. Which is a little bit like pessimistic that it's a little sad to me. Just in the way that it's like oh, I have to owe someone something in order for them to want to continue to interact with me. But I also, in a different culture, that would be not thought of that way. So I get that. Yeah, I don't know. I almost see it as sweet, especially in the sense of just like uh, like two friends out gifting each other or something. (laughs) Like, yeah, like the idea of us being even sucks because we should always be wanting to bestow something on each other. So there's something sweet to that, you know. It makes me think of what I call kindness battles that occur between <laughs> my like, mom and Dave. Yeah, I was going to say between um, me and your mom. <laughs> yeah, because both are, um, you know, I'm going to embarrass Dave maybe, but like both Dave and my mom are very um, sweet people and compassionate people and they like making people happy. And so if they know someone likes something they will get it for that person knowing that they like that and i'm like that too but my mom is like um she's like this to an extreme and (laughs) we're gonna get like silly about it her love language is definitely like acts of service and also like gift giving and so she is the person that when i was living with her she'd be like oh hey you mentioned that you wanted this thing six months ago and you've now forgotten about it, but I remembered, so here you go. And it was like, well, I didn't really need that. And I didn't ask you to do that, but thank you. It's very nice. But but there is now this system in my life where Dave does something nice for my mom and she hates it because she mm-hmm. wanted to do something nice. <laughs> and so there's a constant one up and so like, but not really. well, damn you, you bought me that bottle of wine. So next time we go out, I'm going to buy you two bottles of wine. The and is, it's like, she's always winning. It's, she's yes. Always. I never there's win. There's no competing with her, but it's, it's so funny and sweet. And like, there's so few occasions in my life where I get to witness people like, competing over like doing something nice for someone it's usually the opposite so like (laughs) it's it just like amuses me to no end but that's what it makes me think of is like okay well yeah let's let's out nice each other (laughs) in this in (laughs) in a less competitive way this kind of brings us back to the pumpkins because i saw that (laughs) and i was like i would love to send a pumpkin to someone through the mail who would like this And we had just in our Monster of the Week game been talking about being at a pumpkin patch. And I was like, I think it would be really funny to send these two people kind of their respective pumpkins. So they, I feel, belong to them. And kind of just, I don't think it's a big burden for them, right? They're little pumpkins. They they have a house. They can put it out on the porch. I'm going to mail them pumpkins. And it's, 
it's not a transactional one-upmanship. It's just, I think that a person would like this. It has their name on it, basically. I have the means. How can I strengthen our interconnectedness by having Wait. another thing between us? So like, I wasn't that the, logical about it. I just saw the pumpkins well, and I was like, hell right. yeah. But, you know, <laughs> like, I want to buy someone a pumpkin and ship it to them and yes. I can do it. But for what it's but worth, I, it's hold just on. like, I, oh, go ahead. Because I just want to say, like, Kirsten, my immediate reaction to you was also, damn, we got to send you something. Like, <laughs> I just like felt immediately like, I want to do something nice for you too. Like, it's kind of funny how that. But I've been trying really hard to establish uh, cards back and forth with some of my friends as well. So I am (laughs) engaged with two people and I have some to send out because I asked for addresses. Uh, And part of it is that I bought a lot of stamps to try to support the postal service. And now I'm like, I have 40 stamps. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, I I feel like it's a kind of um, interaction and positivity that, that I need in my life now more than ever that it's like, Oh yeah, I I have enough money that I could spend ten dollars on something totally silly and totally useless, but I know like that person will love it. Yeah, <laughs> but I know that person will love it, and just knowing that they're gonna get that and like it's gonna make them happy for like five seconds even is worth it because I I have the ability to do it and I want to, and just little things that give you joy are important and. And I think that if if we can just hold on to that a little bit and continue to encourage these interactions with each other, I think that's a great thing. I will take all your pumpkins is what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't know. I feel a need to point out this is not very spooky. Not at all. This part isn't spooky, but <laughs> the pumpkin the I'm looking at. Before I, I get back into more spoops, okay? But the pumpkin I'm looking at does say spoopy on it. So with it counts. With three exclamation points. With three exclamation points i'm sorry can you guys hear leroy no no okay good because he's snoring pretty loud and i just don't really want it to be <laughs> too, too overwhelming i'll tell you if, he, if i can hear him okay all right well i let's get back into some spoop then hmm. um a, a very spoopy thing in my opinion is what we were talking about brings to mind i very much enjoy this podcast it's called bad with money with gabby dunn hmm. except The only episode I've ever skipped partway through is she talks to a financial psychologist or something like his specialty, I guess, is he's a psychologist, but in particular talks about the psychology of money, which sounds great. Sounds dope. I'm down. Mm -hmm. Except there's a point at which she says something about how she has never had a lot of money. She's starting to have more success in her career. She has spare cash, like what Christy was talking about. And she has a younger sibling who I think is still in college at the time. And so she tends to send money to that sibling because she says, my life in college really sucked. I want her to be able to go buy a soda or I want her whatever. And he says that this is like poor person thinking. And I just turned it off. I didn't want to hear any justification of like, why it's supposedly bad that if I get money, I give it away. And he says that this can be rooted and I can kind of see maybe the point he was making, but I I didn't hear him out for it. I can see where this could be like pathological where you keep putting yourself in debt to help more people, but that didn't seem to be what she was describing. And I don't, I'm unwilling to entertain this if you're doing fine. The other side of the argument though, is the fact that like, you do tend to see quite a bit of generosity from people who have very little. 
Oh, by percentage, people who are below the median income give wildly larger percentages of their yeah, income and I, things I like don't charity think and mutual aid funds and stuff. I do not buy that it's because they subconsciously want to keep themselves in debt. <laughs> no. I think it's because it's because they've received kindnesses from others. I'm unwilling and, to paint my compassion for other people who may be struggling more than me in this moment as like detrimental to me struggling less yeah. in a future moment. Like, I'm right. not going to stick that in my somewhere. 401k. Right. It's, it's, I think it really is. I choose to believe that it comes from a place of, oh, one time someone helped me when they had a little extra and I was in a real bind and now I have a little extra. So I'm going to give it to someone in need. Yeah. And I wish I don't think that's a bad thing. And I don't think that we should say that that person is like, I don't know, punishing themselves or that they're trying to keep themselves in debt because it's all they know or whatever. Like, I, I, I wish I could believe the nicer version. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could find a tweet that was, it was a tweet thread from a woman who was talking about it. She says the line, like, the same $50 got rotated through my friend group through all of college and early career. And it kept each of us afloat like when we needed it. And we basically just passed it around. And I wonder <laughs> frequently, because I think something that is missing to me frequently in my interactions with people that are more like my class now, I guess. I don't know. I don't feel like I belong to my own economic class. <laughs> um, and we also have to get into the conversations about like having wealth and having been in that class, like the social aspect of socioeconomic classes. But uh, I I wonder frequently about how everything seems to be more community focused or seemed at the time to me. Like when I was waiting tables, if somebody needed $20 off me and I had enough money and tips to be able to pay like whatever the next thing I needed to pay was, I would have just handed them the $20. And like, I still needed that $20. Right. But, but you we're got the all sense there. someone else needed it more at that you moment. You had it at the moment and you And we're all working a get shit job and like whatever. And yeah. it just feels very collaborative in the way <laughs> that Graeber writes about in this book as that like everyday communism or whatever, or the communal debt kind of theory. And I, I wonder if it's because the scale is different or how much of it is a psychological difference with people now that I interact with. I It would be horrifying. Like, I don't know what it would be like to have somebody that's like a current work friend of mine ask me to borrow money because I would be convinced that they were like in devastating times, I think. Yeah. Because it's so I, uncommon, yeah, not right. not because like I'm judging them, but because it would be very bizarre, and that hasn't happened. Well, for if a very you long can, time. if you usually get fourteen dollar lunches, and all of a sudden you need to beg a twenty off of me, what's <laughs> going on? Like it's very different context. That's really interesting. I, I do think uh, poverty and like low income, it's often there is like a culture that is community based. Like people tend to be around other people in the same situation and so it's like a a shared responsibility thing of like oh i don't have any money to give but like i know that my neighbor is struggling so i'm gonna go like mow their grass and they're gonna spot me five or like just things like that like doing things for each other because you can at the moment or you have a little more and there's a responsibility to each other and not just yourself. And I think when you get into like, you know, the classes that have more money, 
you don't have to rely on other people. And so you don't. And I think maybe you have a little less compassion because those pathways were never wired in your brain. Like that's, that was absent. You never had to ask a friend for $5 for lunch because you always had it. I'm also highly suspicious of people who portion out an event, especially now that Venmo exists. I've had conversations with my friends about this. I very much prefer, and I feel a sense of love and caring. If my friend and I go out for lunch and I'm like, oh crap, it's cash only today. I don't happen to have cash. And my friend goes, I got it. And then I just get them lunch the next time. That feels very collaborative to me. It feels very supporting of our friendship. I hate I hate when I go to somebody's place and I like bring a dish to the party and then they're like, okay, I Venmoed everybody for their portion of the pot roast or whatever. Not even like setting aside that I don't eat pot roast Wait, and I'm what? a 20 year vegetarian. Like, Wait, are people do doing not- that? Oh, for sure. There have been many an article about how like. Wait, no, really? People Venmo- I'll, I will Google it since my computer so, like, is on if, if- uh, At a potluck, it's just bring what you like. No one's right. looking in each other's they're... hands at a potluck. I think the only time that we have Venmoed among our friends, it's if like, oh, hey, you're going to the store and it, like, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, oh, hey, you're going to the store and I need things. If you'd pick them up for me, I'll Venmo you my part of it. Yeah. But if we have a potluck or something, people just bring what they can or like, Food like you said, so if, different. Food is so if I've been, right. If I'm I've, doing a main dish and I'm asking you to come, I have accepted and evaluated that I can afford the main dish, and that's why right. I asked you to come. Yeah, right. And then <laughs> right. everything else on top of that is just extra stuff for everyone to enjoy, and there's no need if to... If you're the host, you're accepting the financial responsibility, and you're not expecting anything from anyone except if you ask them to like bring a dish. That is just like such a different psychology for me. And also, it's, <laughs> it's like amazing that that's like the decision being made in, you know, like, as, like as, as you're in the middle class or like moving up that people are like starting to... I don't know. Like, I think like that there are many adages a... about rich people being the cheapest people. And I've heard just as like a <laughs> statement thrown around that like rich people are going to be the worst tippers and rich people are, there's yeah. always that like, well, they don't stay rich by, by spending a lot of money. And I'm like, then I won't be rich. I'll just, that's <laughs> right. fine. I was just telling Dave that like, for slightly different reasons that like managing huge amounts of money is like, there's way more to it than what I have personal experience with. So if I somehow had some huge windfall, I would give it all away until it was a normal amount of money (laughs) for me to manage. (laughs) Because I don't want that responsibility. And and I don't want to become miserly either. (laughs) Like that's it's not I don't ever want that. Uh, this this is there's something I want to say about this and I didn't get to earlier and I I just kind of want to like zero in on it is that like you, you mentioned this the rich dad poor dad guy right mm-hmm. um, and there's I think that there's a big connection between a lot of this like financial uh, uh, like wellfulness or whatever and um, and religion and like Christianity in particular there's like a mm-hmm. And there's like you know whole whole prosperity churches. Prosperity gospel. To, yeah, yeah, right. There's this thing that like I feel like it's in a lot of ways in America totally inseparable. That like it the American religion really is like wealth and and riches and making it <laughs> like 
I, just... I have a delightful another passage for you out of debt the first 5,000 years. Oh, I'd also man. like to add, um, I have one kind of about all of this, a book recommendation, another one. <laughs> it's called Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry. It's by Helene Olin, H-E-L-A-I-N-E, mm-hmm. last name O-L-E-N. Um, I saw a lot of people rate this very low on Goodreads by saying that she never gives like a solution. And I think that's the whole point is that she writes about people like Dave Ramsey, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki, I think, is actually the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, People like that and and how they make a whole business off of basically like making money off of people trying to learn how to make money. Because really... (laughs) A lot of these turn into like the Tim Ferriss four hour work week, I'm pretty sure is like find a passive income source, like being a landlord and then do something like write a blog and then charge people money for access to some of it as you're reading his blog that you paid for. And you're like, hold on now. Wait a second. Like, hold on a minute. Have I been duped? <laughs> That's the dupe part of the spoops and dupes. Uh, yeah, there it is. I was waiting for a dupe. I knew there was one in there somewhere. There's the dupe. But uh, since Dave brought that up, uh, I am delighted to tell you that debt talks about this a little bit. And we're going to talk about Martin Luther. And Mm. in about Mm. 1524, Martin Luther kind of sets up a a way that all of us could live as true Christians in accordance with the gospel. But really, there are only a few people who are capable of doing this. And he says in particular two things uh, that, you know, we should all not be robbing and we should all be returning what we borrow. And this is talking about money borrowed at interest, which at the time in many other theories was considered theft. Like it was a sin of theft to loan money and collect interest on it. Mm -hmm. But then he says, well, we should all be striving to to return what we borrow. And, uh, He gets to this point, I'm going to read another quote right out of the book. Luther began his career as a reformer in 1520 with fiery campaigns against usury. In fact, one of his objections to the sale of church indulgences was that it was itself a form of spiritual usury. These positions won him enormous popular support in towns and villages. However, he soon realized that he'd unleashed a genie that threatened to turn the whole world upside down. And more and more radical people come up. They argue that the poor are not morally obliged to repay interest on usurious loans. There is an attempt at an uprising in Germany. And in 1524, Luther had a sense that matters were spilling out of control and that he would have to choose sides. In that text, he did so. And this is, uh, I don't know what text this is referring to because it's several pages back. (laughs) But Old Testament laws, like the sabbatical year, he argued, are no longer binding. The sabbatical year being that once every seven years, you should do things like let land that you have planted lie fallow. And this tracks with things that we should be doing with land management today. If you're farming, it's very bad to keep putting like soybean year after year after year after year because it does deplete the nutrients of the soil. Mm -hmm. So this is a very old practice. And this also applied that every seven years, we should have jubilee, slaves should be let go, indentured servants should be let go, debts should be wiped, unless it's a commercial debt, like business to business was usually left. But you should smash the tablets 
that these debts were on. So he argues that Old Testament laws like the sabbatical year are no longer binding. The gospel merely describes ideal behavior. Humans are sinful creatures. The law is necessary. While usury is a sin, a four to five percent rate of interest is currently legal under certain circumstances. And while collecting that interest is sinful under no circumstances, is it legitimate to argue that for that reason, borrowers have the right to break the law? So Martin Luther brings us, but really, I mean... Usury is kind of sinful, but like we can't break the law. And uh, it's, it's after, more sinful to, <laughs> to do not pay back law. what you don't really owe yeah. than Wait a minute, to though. swindle people. Did you well I, did you say every seven years, the sabbatical year, seven years? Yes. Doesn't Sabbath day, seventh day, seventh year. Doesn't yeah. bankruptcy stay on your record for like seven years? <laughs> I also could not find an article that draws this line clearly for me. But yes, I also noticed, I think I said this toward the end of my last episode, uh, that that number just keeps popping up. That's when things fall off your credit score. It's Mm -hmm. common kind of expectation that that's how long you should hold documents for. Uh, Fun stuff. Let me continue because I think there's, there's a bookend part. Soon afterward, Calvin, meaning I think John Calvin, was to reject the blanket ban on usury entirely, and by 1650, almost all Protestant denominations had come to agree with his position that a reasonable rate of interest, usually 5%, was not sinful, provided the lenders act in good conscience, do not make lending their exclusive business, and do not exploit the poor. Catholic doctrine was slower to come around, but it did ultimately accede by passive acquiescence. Why does this book have so many long words in it? Uh, anyway so really pretty much all of the protestant church at this time comes to say well uh that logic they were kind of using to justify commercial loans is fine as long as it's it's just a little bit of interest and um it's fine wow cut to today where people regularly have credit cards with 24 percent interest rates on them Imagine what a world would look like if the highest interest rate you could ever be given was 5%. And that that business had to do other things, not just issue expensive loans to people. And uh, it's just the concept that like the amount of... We are where we are today because people continuously justify things because it suits them. And it's just like the justifications just continue, 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 continue until here we are with 24%. Yeah, it's just like, like it's a runaway effect of people giving, you know, themselves just a little bit more leeway on what's acceptable for them to do to each other. And I do, th- I do because think Martin this, Luther and other people like him decided it was okay because they had to take a stand and they chose the stance that benefited them most. And of course they did, because that's what people do. But I can see like the here's the thing, like <laughs> maybe this is just like the stuff that's been beaten into my head. But like I can see the runaway like nightmare that is imposed if no one pays what they owe anyone at all. Like I, I can also see why like they freaked out. And we're <laughs> like, OK, hold on. We need to like we need to commit to at least maybe you should pay something back to the people that you owe them or whatever. Like. But what if everything looked like instead of stuff just falling off your credit score, you pay on something for seven years and then we say, listen, sure, you've yeah. dedicated a huge chunk of your life to this. It's good. Right. What would happen to student loans alone oh. if you paid on that for seven years and then they said, 
this is good. Right. So, like, I think a few things would happen. Like, number one, they might not issue as many loans, or they might be yep. a little bit more careful or as about big which of ones. Loans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that might also force, you know, providers of education to have to adjust what they think they're able to charge based on what people are able to get to attend, you know, their their you know university or whatever, you know. And and then yeah, I think maybe it would a lot of people who basically right now are in a position where they're paying absolutely nothing because it's like I'll never get out of this. Well, maybe maybe people would be willing to pay more of what they can until you know. Or maybe again. like if you have a government backed student loan and for seven years under your income based repayment plan you have never had to pay anything, maybe that's a problem that you shouldn't be held to account for. Mm -hmm. And maybe we look at that and we go, hey, something's messed up with this system. Like you got this degree or you weren't able to finish this degree. Like think about <laughs> if we went back and looked at the source of why you couldn't do that, why you didn't have gainful enough employment to have money to pay on that and feed yourself at the same time. Yeah. And we did something about that. <laughs> well, yep. yeah, exactly. You would, you would basically buy by imposing a sort of like a seven year system or something like that, you'd force people to re-examine a whole host of, you know, like failures in that system that are not addressed right now because it's just like, well, I don't really care. They're still on the hook for the money. So what do I care whether this works or not? And we've made it so that they cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. So they're going to pay me yep. back eventually. Like this becomes yes. what is talked about in the opening of the book debt where debt is nonsensical if it is always bound to be repaid because you can make anyone take on debt and take I mean, there are historical accounts of things like well you couldn't pay your debt and uh we're gonna throw you in debtor's prison that's what we're gonna do about it, mm -hmm. it, it i thought about, i don't have a coherent thought about this because it just makes me mad. well no i just i thought about this when you first mentioned that earlier and you were talking about this that you know like what are you know if it's always bound to be repaid then lenders just make whatever kind of risk and hand out whatever they want because they know they have to get it. I was thinking about like all the <laughs> other ways that, you know, people basically have been able to trick each other into it's almost as it's like when you're like a kid and your <laughs> your sibling has like uh you know somehow uh convinced you to be their slave for the week or whatever. <laughs> that like insane agreement no one can possibly make. And then, you know, you 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 basically, you know, one sibling tortures the other one basically for a week and your parents are like you're the 12 year old like i expect you to behave better than this and then we don't <laughs> feel that way about our entire economic framework yeah exactly yeah. it's just like an agreement no one can make in sound you know like uh soundly and people being held to stuff that uh i don't know circumstances matter just, yeah like you know just being held to the the you know your signature on a piece of paper forever and ever regardless of changing circumstances just isn't think fair. about the fact that i'm so i'm now 32 and i am still paying for decisions i made financial decisions i made when i was 18 and likely will be paying for those decisions for the rest of my life yeah. Especially and, if you take into account there's a biological theory that basically every seven to ten years we're a completely new person. And this is in terms both in cellular turnover where our physical body is different. Mm -hmm. uh, I think with the exception of brain cells maybe don't replace themselves like that. Um, but also 
uh, I think there's some psychological theories at this point that like if you pull somebody and then you pull them seven to ten years later, their opinions might be completely changed, and that's right. roughly the window of time in which all especially what seven years you're measuring from. Like if you're measuring yeah. from eighteen to seven years later, like there's a lot of growth that happens in that part of your life. So of course your opinions are very different, and you are a very different person. If you're not that is an indicator of you know maybe something not so good happening because you should be growing and changing a lot so i've gone through a lot of changes in my life i'm a totally different person from 32 to when i made that decision at 18 i obviously know a lot more about the world than i did then partially because i've had struggles that i had because of those decisions but i'm still paying for it like regardless of the fact that i've learned that i've grown that I've overcome things, I'm still paying for it. And I'm still going to be paying for it. And there's no true forgiveness for it. There's there's no good job for coming as far as you did. And also uh, just a personal uh, importance of the seven-year thing. So for seven years, as I mentioned earlier, I'm finally done with having things in collections that was a seven-year process it took seven years and it's a shorter process than it is for some people but for seven years I've been panicking and dealing with and planning how to handle things that are in collections that could really mess my life up so seven years is like important for me too (laughs) in in a weird personal way um, Which is just funny. So as we come up to about an hour and a half on this, and I'm thinking maybe we want to find our way to a close on it, I just want to point mm-hmm. out that an episode that was basically about debt included uh, a whole lot of variety of agonies, including like, you know, like uh, religious uh, uh, sort of um, like deep religious conflicts, slavery, anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. every kind of awfulness tied to debt. Um, I don't think we should be surprised by that. No, yeah, like, we should. I feel like we shouldn't be. I was a little, but I feel like we shouldn't be. Let's the biggest like... relationship argument is money, right? Isn't that some right. sort of surveyed statistic that that people divorce most over money and yeah. how to manage money and differences in it and things like that? I believe that. I don't. Know and and how sure, many but... how many crimes are based around money in some way? Well, Theft. crimes around money. Robbery. As long as you're not at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> yes. There's right. so a you're wrong about episode about like, why didn't anybody get punished for the financial crisis or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As no. long as you're not a top dog, then yeah. And it's funny because <laughs> like money is like, it's weird because it's both like kind of concrete and kind of abstract, right? Mm-hmm. And like money is as much like a uh like a measurable kind of tangible expression of like value as it is also just this like a vague force of power that is used to leverage people countries you know institutions um and i think when you when you think about debt it's important to think about it as a a means of its power exerted by people who have that money and and used on those who don't so it's, it's people with again, all the money telling the people without the money that they need to give them more money. 
Uh, it's it's always great when Dave leads me into something else that I want to talk about because I have two more little post-its and then I will wrap up shortly. And one of my last post-its is it talks about uh, a consultant at a non-governmental organization explaining that uh, they're there in Cairo, Egypt in 95 and saying that money is empowerment and that's why we need to bring more opportunities for credit and therefore debt to other countries. In America, we get all these credit card offers. And, you know, if you're industrious, like you can, you can take out these loans. And there's a long quote here and Graber sums it up and says, the very incoherence of the quote is telling. The only unifying theme seems to be people ought to be in debt. It's good in itself. It's empowering. Anyway, if they end up too empowered, we can also have them arrested. Debt and power, sin and redemption become almost indistinguishable. Freedom is slavery. Slavery is freedom. And they talk about just all these people who are trying to give out loans to other people and also recognize that the other people next to them are basically just exploiting this to get as rich as possible, but then turning around, looking in the mirror and saying, I'm giving somebody a credit. I'm helping them get credit. We should democratize credit <laughs> and, and painting, you know, this as a, a great thing. Except that we've seen time and time again, uh, there's the phrase, you know, the market always has a correction. And that correction is frequently something like the subprime mortgage collapse in 2008 that mm -hmm. put a lot of people out of work, shuttered a lot of businesses. An odd anecdote that I really appreciate is I saw somewhere once that uh, even in luxury brands, the quality of a lot of clothing goods went down and never bounced back up because they basically said, like, we'll manufacture this somewhere else and use worse fabric uh -huh. so that we can keep making stuff and making money. And then it just never went back to normal. But yeah, uh, debt is is an opportunity, I guess. And in his closing few pages, my final post-it, um, he writes about, for me, this is exactly what's so pernicious about the morality of debt. The way that financial imperatives constantly try to reduce us all despite ourselves to the equivalent of pillagers, eyeing the world simply for what can be turned into money, and then tell us that it's only those who are willing to see the world as pillagers who deserve access to the resources required to pursue anything in life other than money. It introduces moral perversions on almost every level. For example, cancel all student loan debt, but that would be unfair to all those people who struggled for years to pay back their student loans. Let me assure the reader that as someone who struggled for years to pay back his student loans and finally did so, this argument makes about as much sense as saying it would be unfair to a mugging victim not to mug their neighbors too. He goes on to say, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I would like then to end by putting in a good word for the non-industrious poor. And he presents this as a difference between the industrious poor are these people who should be given the opportunities to take debt, right? Think of hustle culture now. If you're broke, you need to come home from your nine to five and work on your five to nine. You need to take out a loan and start a business. You need to set an Etsy shop up. Mm. So he's saying he'd like to put in a word for the non-industrious poor. At least they aren't hurting anyone. Insofar as the time they are taking off from work is being spent with friends and family, enjoying and caring for those who they love, they're probably improving the world more than we acknowledge. Maybe we should think of them as pioneers of a new economic order that would not share our current one's pension for self-annihilation. And his closing paragraph is, what is a debt anyway? A debt is just the perversion of a promise. It is a promise corrupted by both math and violence. If freedom, real freedom, is the ability to make friends, then it is also necessarily the ability to make real promises. What sorts of promises might genuinely free men and women make to one another? At this point, we can't even say. 
It's more a question of how we can get to a place that will allow us to find out. And the first step in that journey, in turn, is to accept that in the largest scheme of things, just as no one has the right to tell us our true value, no one has the right to tell us what we truly owe. Wow. That's a great conclusion. Oh, my God. Please go read this book. It's 500 pages, but like 100 pages are notes and and footnotes and indices and references and things like that. So it's not too bad. If you've read the Harry Potter books, it's certainly a a lot more long words, but I think you can get through it. And I want to add... That that, that we, idea of like the a debt is a perversion of a promise is so completely yeah. poignant. I, I also want to mention like this idea that like I struggled so other people must struggle. It's gross. It's also how we justify hazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think I I there were like years ago I was thinking about this that like there there's the generations above us there's members of those generations that that raise their kids with that idea that like i had it tough so they have to have it tough so they like they you know earn their medal right like they they can handle it and then there's the other version of like i had it tough so i'm gonna do everything i can so they have it less tough because that was really hard and i don't want my children to struggle because why would I want to? Because I love them. And there's just like these two totally disparate ideas. But I, I, it's such a poisonous concept of like, well, it was bad for me. So it's got to be bad for everybody. Just like, I think it's the same away. kind of non-logic explanation that is in the, the group along with like, well, we've always done it this way. Or yeah. I watched a talk from DEF CON this year, which was all online, obviously. And I think it's called something like who's secure, who's not, who decides. I, I guess this is a Hamilton reference. I didn't get it. I don't know. Uh, and naturally, so the person is talking at length about how, so for example, Zoom, Zoom said at one point, you know, we'll implement encryption end to end, but it's only going to be for paid users and talks for an hour about all of these digital security issues that basically wind up just perpetuating inequality and making it so that poorer people or people with fewer opportunities, people who don't understand things as well, people who aren't as well versed in computer security, if we keep putting in things where they will be the least secure, they will be the most exploitable in a variety of ways. And naturally, some freaking ding dong on YouTube has to be like, it's just business. Zoom isn't yeah. making money off of those people, and it's going to cost them money to implement this. And no, it's not. The entire concept of business is made up the way that money is made up, and the economy mm-hmm. doesn't actually exist. So do not <laughs> ever come tell me that something is just business, because that business is what you have chosen to make of it, which means that you've made a yeah. variety of moral, ethical, and legal decisions. And frequently, again, you conflated legal with ethical by telling me that something's not illegal, so it's fine to do. And you've chosen to make this your business and how you do things. And that isn't just business. Even think about farming. And so if you want to talk strict money, we have a lot of crops that are subsidized. So what would it look like as just business regarding encrypting or not encrypting traffic if there was a subsidy for companies to make end-to-end safe encryption that uses like multi-factor authentication for the users that are using it, multi-part hardware keys for the people who are implementing it and having no backdoors? What would that look like? What would just business look like with regard to who gets encrypted and who doesn't? It would depend on which company that or which country that company is in and what the the stipulations of that subsidy are or things like that. So the same way we subsidize corn or soybean and that changes the economy of what a farmer might plant. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just farming then. Maybe they like farming strawberries, but they're going to farm corn because it's what they can get money for. 
Right. Yeah. yeah like it, we can. It's shape. just business. Depends on who's making the justifications and who it benefits. Yeah. Of course. We have the ability to shape the sort of behaviors of you know independent organizations like that by what we value and what we, like you said, what we subsidize. I don't know. Just business is such a euphemistic way of of saying I don't know. <laughs> like, like I'm well, short, short stop asking my... questions about why I did this mean ass thing that I did. It's just business. Right. It's not it's about dismissive you. and it's <laughs> insulting to the people it actually impacts. Because clearly, if you're the one able to say it's just business, then it's not impacting you. And it's almost always the person that's cutting people off that says it's just traffic, right? Like <laughs> you're mad because <laughs> they crossed four lanes with no signal, and they're like, "It's just traffic. I'm just trying to get where I'm going." Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's like a that's sort of like very easy to say as you look over your shoulder at someone else. Yeah, while you're while you're as, as the cars are dust. piling up behind you, it's easy, and you're not in the middle of it. It's easy to say, "Well, it's just traffic." As my final thing, it's not completely dovetailed into what I was talking about, but I want to say I am acquainted with somebody who worked on this. Uh, the Center for American Progress, which is like a, a policy group that I don't fully understand what they are <laughs> in D.C., uh, did a big research report. Uh, it's titled Addressing the $1.5 trillion in Federal Student Loan Debt. And I thought it was a really interesting read if you've been thinking particularly about student loans. And it was written around the time that like Bernie Sanders was really in the news proposing free college and things like that and addressing the concept of student loan forgiveness and looking at different ways that we could do this while also not basically like furthering inequality. And so, you know, if we forgive all student loans, this is cool, especially like if we implement free college and then we just wipe all of them out. What does that mean and how does it help people out? And if we have less money to work with, what other ways can we do uh, partial forgiveness that might might help out people who need it the most and things like that? Mm -hmm. uh, I found it particularly interesting that, for example, first time college students, first generation college students have much higher rates of defaulting on their loans. People who never completed their degree or who completed a certificate have much higher rates of defaulting on those loans. And so that's why I kept bringing up things about like, if you, if you pay on this for seven years and it's, it's clearly not working out for you, what went wrong? Is it that you had to drop out of college to go look after your grandma and so you didn't get that pay boost that comes from completing a degree but you still have all these loans what do things like that look like and it's it's a lot of interesting data in my opinion you said that's uh so i, I think i found it at the uh, at americanprogress.org the center for american progress yes yeah i'm definitely gonna have to read that because this is a thing that's like i feel like there's a decent chance within the next decade someone's gonna pull the trigger on debt relief um i don't know who or when but I feel like it's, I don't know, it's going to actually matter uh, in not too long what people decide to do oh. about it. I am of the opinion that plenty of other countries seem to be handling free college just fine, and we mm. should do that. And I think that, yeah. if possible, the fairest thing to do when flipping that switch is to also forgive, you know, even if... I would settle for like flipping the switch and forgiving anything that somebody's been paying five years on and saying, you know what, you did enough or or whatever. Uh, I don't really care how it's implemented. Yeah. That's the me. I want to clarify. Last episode, I accidentally said I believed in the fully automated luxury gay space capitalism, <laughs> and I meant communism. This idea that we all have free college and replicators that feed us food we need to eat. And yeah. uh that that would be good for me, but I'll also settle for things like they propose uh, forgiving ten thousand dollars, I think, in student debt, 
as a potentially very equitable solution because people who have more than that are very likely to have completed a degree or be in like a, a graduate degree or something like that. And those are typically they find the most capable of paying theirs back over time or the most economically yeah. mobile mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, I, and I don't I'm, know, man. I paid I wanna... mine off and I still want free college and <laughs> yeah, free loans yeah. for everybody. I, w- I want to <laughs> say like as a personal statement, because I still have a lot of debt, still student loan debt. I'm now at a place in my life, like I'm not, I don't make a lot of money, but I'm okay. And so like, if they were like, oh, hey, we'll pay off 10000 I'd be like, that's awesome. Thank you. That doesn't, like, make it go away. But there are people that could really, really, really help, and I'm okay. Like, if it benefits other people, if whatever their solution is, if it somehow misses me, I'm fine. Like, let it help people it really needs to help. Yeah. Even if they decided college now is free, but fuck everyone with student loans i think that's fucked up and they shouldn't do that but like <laughs> it, it do something good yeah, like, do something I'm not that gonna helps hold it, people i'm not gonna hold it against people who are suddenly out of nowhere going to school for free like right like somehow i'm not gonna cry about it because they me. got help i didn't get yeah. i'm gonna be happy that other people don't have to go through what i went through like it's just i just let's just make decisions that benefit us, us the collective us for the future Thinking and... about the collective community, that's communism, Christy. We don't do that. <laughs> I'm telling you, the, the world is the Star Trek future doesn't have debt, doesn't have resource scarcity. They don't have money. They, they just don't, don't have money. It's it really is sad to me that thinking about other people is a bad thing. Like it I I hate that part of our society. <laughs> I hate the part of society that is constantly weighing like looking in everyone else's bowl and being like, but what about yeah. To make sure they don't have more than you. Not yeah. to make sure that they need, you know, maybe they need right. more, but to say, well, they got more than me. And yeah. I gotta say, I've definitely worked with people that I feel are very incompetent and rude and awful and make the workplace bad for everybody who makes more, they make more money than me. And it's been like a 10 year progress thing for me to just kind of come to peace with that. And I think that that's a very bad example of something where, you know, I I obviously still feel like maybe it would be valid for them to not get that because I don't feel they're qualified. But uh, it, it has certainly brought me more personal peace to just try to work toward a place where I'm like, you know what? Where you can let it I'm go. I'm <laughs> not going to ask about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm okay. I'm going to check on my friends. And I'm yeah. going to see if they're okay and if I can help out. And you know what? If if they want to go make $200,000 a year being a jerk, well, <laughs> I can't do anything about it. So. <laughs> Until we get to gay space communism. Yeah, right. We'll, we'll just, some just things we're just going to say okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, this feels like a really good place for us to to wrap this episode up. I have one more book recommendation. I'm sorry. I'm just full of them. No, that's cool. Um, what is the, it? Now, I'm impressed by only... how many books you read. I, I bought I, that book, I, by the way. It's something I struggle with. Follow and me on Goodreads, everybody. Um, yeah, I no, bought that book one... while we were talking. <laughs> Yay. The one direct personal finance book that I think I would actually recommend to people, and I've read a lot because around last year when I started listening to Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn, the whole thing about her podcast is that she tries to also look at like broad forces. And I love that she'll ask, she'll ask somebody who's talking about like investing for your 401k. Okay, what if people only have $5? 
like you're saying all of these strategies for increasing and like cutting costs, but what about people who just don't have that money? And the person is always like, um, just trying to build a habit. And I would say that I will teach you to be rich is probably the one book that I feel like wasn't incredibly condescending. He still doesn't do a great job of addressing that. Like I'm, it sucks that if you're making $20,000 a year in this country, you're probably not going to fund your own 401k. I get so mad when people posit like self-funding retirement as something that you desperately need to do because everybody in my life has always just gotten social security as they get older. They just are on a fixed income and Mm -hmm. that's it. And they're fine. And they're happy people who, well, like, I don't want to, I don't want to portray this as like the the noble savage of of being broke or whatever, but um, yeah, no, we're still going to each other's homes, playing guitar together and and cooking meals together and like it's not the be all end all if you can't have a million dollars in your 401k by the time you're 30 period that said the approach and i will teach you to be rich that i agree very much with is he the author gives an example of when he went out to eat with his family his parents did not order appetizers and i can relate to this like we ordered water we ordered a main dish and ideally Mm -hmm. we had leftovers that we brought home to eat for another meal and that was that. So he was like, in my rich life, I'm ordering appetizers when I go out. And you pick what works for you, and then you cut back on everything else that you don't actually care that much about. So yeah. if you love buying clothes because you love clothes, work out a budget for yourself where maybe you cook all your meals. And maybe you do make coffee at home. And then, shit, you spend 20 bucks on clothes. You spend 20 bucks Pri- on clothes. Yeah. Prioritize what your personal wants and needs are. And then make a budget plan, if it's feasible, make a budget plan that works what's important to you. There's, I agree, like, there shouldn't be blanket statements of, like, everyone should be doing these things because it doesn't work into everyone's lifestyle and not everyone has the same priorities. Yeah, I, I think it's like, I, I think I already used the word condescending, but I think there's this thing of, like, looking at people <laughs> who are struggling and giving them advice, and it's like, well... Deny all of your human needs because those aren't the important (laughs) thing in your life. What's important is erasing this number on a sheet. I I just fundamentally disagree with that approach. I also disagree disagree with this concept of a self-funded retirement being all important because we used to have pensions. Mm -hmm. And this entire thing is a head fake to keep us from looking at the fact that you used to be expected to work hard for 20 years, but then you would be rewarded with being taken care of. And if you died, if you had a spouse, they would get part of your pension because you did something, you sold your labor, your time, your body, your work, your physical movement. Mm -hmm. And that was the deal. And if we stop looking at that having been the deal by instead getting focused on all of these ads for like round up your purchases and automatically put it in your savings account to go into your IRA, we stop thinking about how much we got screwed over. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's a bait and switch. It's like, look over here or it's a misdirect rather. It's like, look over here and focus on this so we can take this away from you. Um, also, also so I just love the automaton mentality of like. Well, clearly, the only thing that brings us joy and makes us happy is money. And if you don't have money, then you can't (laughs) you must not be happy. So, like, you don't have to worry about doing anything for joy because that's not important. The only important thing is that you don't have money and you have to find a way to get money. No, like a lot of people who don't have money have kind of accepted the fact that they don't have money and are probably working very hard to do what they can to, like, solve the problems surrounding that. 
but also like you take the small joys where you can get them because that is what's important when that is what you have and that's that's what i get out of this <laughs> so that's been an extra scary episode of goose chase Spoops uh, and dupes all the, around. The scariest ever. Oh my god. <laughs> it was kind of a joke, like I said, but it boy, it sure got real. We really talked it up, but I, I think it delivered. Yeah. It was kind of a joke Excellent. that Dennis... But also awful. <laughs> well yeah. yeah. And the thing is I, I regret uh, that uh I don't know. I, I wish I knew more on the history of debt and I learned a lot here, and I'm looking forward to reading this book. Just sort I think of... we're going to come out of this with a small financial library with all of your suggestions. <laughs> I think Dave just ordered like five books. <laughs> no, just, just the one, just the one. <laughs> um, but debt the first 5,000 years seems so. And there's a new uh, edition, the updated and expanded edition. So yes. uh, So that's the one I ordered. But um, Well, debt... thank you. I, I feel like every time you come up, you come on this show, I'm like, ah. I my research has has been shown up. Like you do so much more. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. This is I the gotta one say, by the interview. way, if what you guys get stuck on, uh, uh, I love listening to Goose Chase. And if what you get stuck on is time to do research, boy, howdy, I love love building a Google dork. So I'd also like to offer my services. I I, I have to tell you, I'm amazed though that like this is the episode you said you didn't prepare that much for. Yeah. <laughs> It's more like this is the one where I had to do the most remembering of things that I have read over time as opposed to in the last month, like purposely. As someone who really struggles with like comprehension and retaining information I've read, it's completely impressive to me that you were able to do that, especially in these times when like I think everyone's brains are struggling to do a lot of that. I want to be clear. I love reading on Kindle because I just press and hold to to look up what a word means and I can press and hold and drag to make notes. So my trick for this was I bought a hard copy because I much prefer referring to those as I'm talking and it's just a nice book to have in the library. And I went back to my Kindle and I went to all of my notes that were on it. I got it from the library originally. So I reborrowed it, looked up all of my notes and then put the post-its in the book and reread those like few pages of each so that I could kind of read that. So that's study tips from Kirsten. (laughs) (laughs) That's a system. Yeah. Uh, So, all right. Well, uh, I hope your other pumpkin gets to you soon. The original expe- expected delivery date was Monday, so maybe it'll pop up on Monday. I hope so. I'm the thought of two pumpkins separated in the mail is just too heartbreaking. Like I really want <laughs> them to be reunited. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for the pumpkin and for the episode and for everything, Kirsten. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. And to listeners, if you're sick of me, because I've been on like three times this fall, I need to take a break. So you'll have a break. All right. You got to figure out what you're going to do next and maybe spend like six months reading books about it. Give yourself a little time. I'm also, as I said, I'm going to take a little break from DMing our tabletop game and do some different things. I think that a lot of this I thought would be quarantine projects that would be shorter term than they actually were. And uh, None much, of us of the country, <laughs> much of the country is hitting the same wall I am, where my brain is pretty mushy. I, <laughs> yeah. I frequently find myself telling my supervisor at work, yes, I have that written down on a list. I'm sorry I haven't gotten to it yet. I spent all day trying to comprehend this one article on how to do something. <laughs> and luckily, I work in a workplace where they're like, yep, that's They right. understand. <laughs> 
so, all right. Uh, thank you out there for listening to this episode of Spooky Goose Halloween. Spooky, Spooky Goose Chase. You have to say Goose Chase like Goose a, Chase, but like goose a ghost. Chase. all right thanks for listening we'll be back in a couple of weeks bye bye (laughs) you've been listening to goose chase we are goose chase podcast on facebook and twitter on twitter our handle is at goose chase pod and our website is www.goosechasepodcast.com If you have any topics you'd like us to research, please email us at goosechasepodcast at gmail.com. If you like what we do on the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. Want to go on a goose chase? Ooh, yes.